What up, pop people? I'm Sam. And I'm Katie. And it's about to get real lit. Lit up in here? The show where a college professor and two-degreed English literature kid talks about literature in a long-life video file and self-imposed studier of movies talks about your favorite movies all while under the influence of your favorite or possibly your least favorite alcohol yep. of choice. Mine's vodka. It's always vodka. Sorry about it. <laughs> it, it right, exactly. It's like, <laughs> comment below. What, what alcohol is your least favorite and why is it vodka? <laughs> uh, well, my favorite is vodka. So to anyone who doesn't like vodka, I'm sorry. That's Oof. all I'm going to drink because everything else is horrible. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, today it's tequila for me, which runs in my veins. It's the only part of my Mexican genes that went in. My um, like 13% of Mexicanness, about 10 of that percent went into being able to drink tequila. And then the other 3% went into making my eyes green instead of blue. Hey, you're like 25%. Don't sell yourself <laughs> short. You're, you're a quarter Mexican. It's fine. Oh, yeah, if people saw me act, instead of just listening to my voice, they would absolutely think that we are joking, and I don't blame any of them for that. Oh, no, same. <laughs> you at least, though, you have the dark, dark hair. Like, mine is just the only thing about my complexion and my hair and my features that doesn't look exactly like all of my white <laughs> brethren on my mother's side is my eyes, which is super strange because blue eyes are so dominant and yeah. everyone on my mom's side has blue eyes and I am the only person that has my dad's green eyes instead. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty strong to push out the oaky blue eyes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So last time we rambled on for much, much longer than you'll end up listening, pod people, but, but we are going to uh, jump in today to attempt to give you guys at least some form of structure. So today, our episode two, I'm covering Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Have you ever read it? No. You've never read Pride and Prejudice? Oh my God, Katie. Okay. I'm really excited right now. <laughs> Have you seen any of the movies? Nope. <gasps> my heart is flying. I am just, this is the biggest gift you've ever given me in our life. And yeah. we've been I, cousins my entire life. So, so I thought exciting. about looking for uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies to watch as the mm-hmm. review movie this week, but I decided against it. <laughs> I have not read or watched Pride and Prejudice and Zombies because I love Pride and Prejudice so much that I feel like I just won't be able to get into it. Like, I understand the appeal that people have for it, and I feel like if Pride and Prejudice wasn't one of my favorites of all time, but in particular of Jane Austen, that I would probably be able to enjoy it like everyone else does. But I just know that I'm not going to be able to get into it like everyone does, so I've just kind of avoided it. So Pride and Prejudice, uh, I had to read Pride and Prejudice uh, like lots of students used to when I was in high school as part of our English literature. And that was the first time I read it. And I always, I already had it because I had it um, because somebody, one of my family members gave me, you can see it here, this huge brick 
of a Jane Austen compilation, and it's not all of her books, it's just four of them, and Pride and Prejudice was one of them. So I had always had it, but I had not read it yet because I was, you know, a teenager who didn't care. But I had to for my English lit class, and that was the first time I got to read it, and Jane Austen, of course, quickly became one of my favorite women authors of all time, absolutely. So let's just cover a little bit about Jane Austen before um, I talk specifically about Pride and Prejudice. So Jane Austen was born December 16th, 1775, and she died July 18th, 1817. She was only 41 years old when she died. She was an English novelist, obviously. She is primarily known for six major novels, but she wrote a shit ton of other stuff out there too. Her novels really, all of them in particular, like interpret and critique and like comment upon what was called like the British landed gentry that was happening at the end of the 18th century. It's essentially all about class and, you know, land ownership and uh, particularly uh, social castes and social uh, interactions and social relationships between men and women and how in particular for women, literally almost every facet in their lives that would be important to them was dependent upon marriage, how they married, who they married to, uh, whether or not they were going to have a life that was fulfilling or in any way, shape or form, fun <laughs> in any regard. The patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And Jane Austen would absolutely today probably wholeheartedly say fuck the patriarchy as well. So her works in particular really critique like the sensibleness, like the sensibility in the second half of the 18th century uh, and part of like the transition into the 19th century. So she's very realistic. She's a literary realist. Her works are not in any way, shape or form fantastical or there's no uh, delving into fantasy or things like that. They are all realistic depictions of society that she was growing up in and she is known for her really really biting irony her humor and of course her social commentary all the stuff that we know about her mostly of course comes from her family in particular comes from letters that she would write to her family she wrote most to her sister Cassandra so her family really, really loved to make it out for a long time in particular that Jane Austen is just a very sensible, she was calm, plain, she was a homebody, she was obviously very smart, but they liked to lean into the fact that she was the demure, simple woman. She never married, uh, she died unmarried. And that was just, of course, you know, according to them, she just simply wasn't interested. This is probably not true, and most of us know that now, especially to her letters to her sister Cassandra and Cassandra's letters back to her and stuff. They make them pretty clear um, that Austin was a lot more versatile and a lot more like an understandably nuanced person than that. In times, actually, she clearly suffered from bouts of depression, and she also, for the most part, more often than not, those bouts were really all about how she really was resentful and just exasperated 
by how ridiculous her family was at times. She had a family who she often criticized <laughs> in her, her personal letters and how many scholars believe she also, you know, depicted the ridiculousness of them in the characters that she created. And in fact, uh, <laughs> I had to put this in here in the research for it because it's just, it's just a wonderful little tidbit that we don't have a lot of her correspondence, but the stuff that we do have, you know, obviously are the letters, a lot of them from the letters that she wrote to her sister Cassandra, but we don't have a lot of those either. There were a lot more, but Cassandra in particular destroyed <laughs> or censored a bunch of her letters because she didn't want them falling into the hands of relatives or neighbors or their neighbors relatives she didn't want them falling into those hands so that they wouldn't have to read Jane's the quote is sometimes acidic or forthright comments Damn. <laughs> so she just literally was tearing people up like left and right all the time in her letters and her sister was like we probably shouldn't let these letters exist Good for you, girl. <laughs> her sister was like monitoring her Facebook and yes. Twitter feed and like, nah. Yes. She was like, you probably nah. should put that on uh, friend only. Yeah, read. friends only. <laughs> like, blo let's block mom from seeing this. <laughs> Nobody needs to see this. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense because of how Jane Austen writes. Like, Jane Austen, her biggest thing is she can write and she can't just write she can write and turn a phrase that can just absolutely cut someone to the quick her biggest thing like she writes romances but what is so interesting about her is her romances are 90 percent filled with comments and writing and rhetoric that are all just biting, scathing irony and satirical comments on society and relationships and the like stupid, you know, habits and ways that people conducted themselves with other people. She just would cut into every single like facet of those types of social interactions to the core. And I think that was probably the appeal for everyone back then because of how just so clearly like, damn, it was for them, especially coming from a woman writer, which was not very common. So like I said, she's basically known for her six kind of major novels. Her first one that she published was Sense and Sensibility, which is another one of her very well-known ones. She published Sense and Sensibility on what is called On Commission. So it's at the author's financial risk. When you publish On Commission, the publisher will advance the cost of the publication and they will repay themselves as the books are sold and then charge a 10% commission for each book sold and pay the rest to the author. So if the novel doesn't recover its cost through the sales, the author is responsible for them. So that is what selling on commission was. And that is what she does for every single one of her novels, except for Pride and Prejudice, which people say she probably really regretted because it was the only one that she did not do on commission. What she did for Pride and Prejudice was uh, she sold the copyright so when you sold the copyright, the author receives a one-time payment from the publisher for the manuscript, and that's it. 
that's all that happens for it. So it got her name on it because Pride and Prejudice was the next book that she sold after Sense and Sensibility, her first one. And it sold very well. It was incredibly popular, especially because they put on it from the author of Sense and Sensibility, which was also very popular and people just picked it up. But because that was the one that she did not do on commission, she did not make nearly as much as she would have made if she was on commission. If she had been on commission, she would have easily made four or five times the amount of money that she ended up making from Pride and Prejudice selling. And then all the rest of the stuff that she sells, she sells on commission from then on. So one really, really funny thing about Austin that I just have to mention before I talk about her death and then um, we'll go into Pride and Prejudice is that (laughs) Austin was so popular that at one point she learned the Prince Regent of England (laughs) admired her novels and like kept a set of them in his like residences. And in November of 1815, the Prince Regent's librarian invited Austin to visit the Prince's London residence and hinted to Austin that the Prince would really love it if she dedicated her next book to him. And that next book was going to end up being Emma. And the greatest thing about this is that Austin didn't like (laughs) the Prince Regent. Like her family and the people who knew her knew that she actually didn't really like the Prince Regent. Uh, But she like could like hardly refuse that sort of thing because it's the Prince Regent. And she was like, okay. So she, she didn't like him because she thought he was a womanizer. He gambled. He was a heavy drinker. He was you know, obviously very wealthy, but he was super like stingy, I guess, about that. And she thought that that was really kind of disreputable of him since he's obviously the Prince Regent. Like, why are you trying to behave like you're not? (laughs) Yeah. So she did, of course, do that for the Prince Regent. But it's just hilarious that like everyone around her when it happened kind of looked at her side eye like, Jane, are you going to behave yourself if you go into the Prince Regent's library and like talk to him and stuff? Like, is this going to be okay? Do we need to like watch out for you here? So uh, like I said, Jane Austen was 41 when she died, which is pretty young, not super young for this time for women in particular, but it was pretty young. She died of um, primarily, I guess, Addison's disease. This is also known as primary adrenal insufficiency or hypocortisolism. So it's an endocrine disorder. The adrenal glands don't produce enough steroid hormones. So she was feeling this for a while. She had started feeling it about a year and a half before she eventually dies of it, but she hit it and she kept working. And her symptoms were abdominal pain, weakness, weight loss, your skin darkens in areas. It would have given her low blood pressure. So she would have suffered from vomiting and extreme nausea. She probably had lower back pain. She probably often blacked out randomly because of the low blood pressure and the vomiting. And the problem with this is that stress and any sort of injuries or surgeries or infections or anything like that can exacerbate Addison's disease really hard. And she was 
as noted by many people who knew her, a very stressed, like, individual. Like, she was stressed out a whole lot. She had a bunch of things that were happening in her family and stuff like that, too, that would make her stressed. But, of course, she was one of the only, you know, popular women writers at the time. And so it probably hastened her death, unfortunately. The other thing that contributed to her death was she also, it's rumored that she also probably had Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a specific type of cancer that originates from white blood cells. And so she would have also been dealing with this if she had Hodgkin lymphoma. She would have had fever, night sweats, more weight loss in addition to the Addison's weight loss. Her lymph nodes would have been enlarging um, in her neck, in her arm, uh, in the groin. She probably would have always felt really tired and she could have potentially have always been really itchy, which for the type of clothes and the amount of stuff that you wore, particularly as a woman back in her time, was probably just, I mean, almost unbearable to deal with. And so that's unfortunately how she died. But she left, yeah, and she left, of course, a wonderful lasting legacy that she's she's never going to be forgotten as a person. So Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice was written in 1813, and it's her second, I shouldn't say written, it was finally eventually published in 1813. Originally, the name for the novel was called First Impressions, but she changed it eventually, probably to allude to uh, a different other important work at the time that she enjoyed. But most importantly, it was because there were other things that were out that were popular at that time that were also called the first impressions. A lot of other things that were happening that were popular at that time, like plays and um, a few other writings or essays were also titled like first impressions or impressions of the beginning or things like that. And she wanted to make her title stand out so that it wouldn't be confused with other popular works. So she changed that. And uh, it is, of course, now one of the most well-known romances of all time. So let's get into it. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm so excited that you have never read Pride and Prejudice and you don't know a fucking thing about it. I'm just, I'm so fucking excited right now. Okay. I know that it's about Kira Knightley falling in love with... What's Patron, his name? uh, what's Colin Firth? No, he was in the movie. No. Colin, Colin Firth. Firth was in one of the most popular um, adaptations of it. Yes. It was actually a made for TV series. It's six episodes. It was in like the 90s or something. And Colin Firth is great in it. Like, he's a huge babe in that. But Kiara Knightley's was um, someone a different else. Different version. All right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Kiera I Knightley know they is... were both in it. In, yeah, at some point. Yeah, at it was some point. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was great. But let's get into it. So the first line of Pride and Prejudice is actually pretty iconic. So I kind of wanted to read it to start us off. The first line of Pride and Prejudice is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. For some reason, that is just a super iconic line. And I think it's super iconic because of especially how the story goes, but especially everyone knowing Jane Austen and how the rest of her stories go and reading how she writes and stuff, that this is her being satirical. She thinks this is an absolutely like bullshit thing that is just so stupid. She thinks the entire thing is ridiculous. So that is the opening line. And this is how Pride and Prejudice goes. We 
enter the scene, we have a family. This family is the Bennetts. We have Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, and they have five daughters, no sons, five girls. So just FYI off the bat, so we know here, no sons means no inheritance for their immediate children. The girls will get dowries that they have to pay for their husbands wherever they go off, but their estate, their land, all of that stuff, all of the money associated with it won't go to them because they're not men. That's so, so fucking dumb. Fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> Fuck this bullshit. Ugh, yeah. I'm already mad. We're like half a line into this fucking book. And I'm pissed already. So this needs to be known because it needs to be known for everyone to understand just first of all why stories like this would make sense for people to be into because it was their reality this was just what happened back then and it also makes sense for you so much more the behaviors of certain women in particular mrs bennett who is um, the main character's mother of course and she is a very interesting character you will i'm sure have lots to say about her but she gets a lot of shit but you have to remember what the time period is that she is in and she is acting this way because of this reality because of the fact that she has five fucking daughters and none of them are going to get their house so we open it up this is our family the bennett's mr and mrs bennett and their five daughters the daughters are jane who is the oldest lizzie or elizabeth who is the second oldest elizabeth is our heroine she is our main character we then have after her mary then kitty then lydia who is the baby okay so our story begins because in their neighborhood, there's a new guy in town who's just bought one of the empty estates. This new guy is hella rich. And Mrs. B is like, uh, hey, Mr. Bennett, you should go and visit this dude that just moved in. You should go and visit him and talk about our daughters. And he's like, do it your damn self. <laughs> and it's essentially a really good playful conversation between them. It happens to really establish their relationship as a married couple, which for people at this time would have been considered a very strange and not technically really like ideal marriage. In modern audiences, they actually find Mr. and Mrs. B endearing as a couple because of this. They find the way that they are as a couple a little bit more realistic than what... I guess that he actually listens to her and lets her speak her mind. He does, but he's also also very, very sarcastic and he like teases her. He pokes fun at her a lot and doesn't take, like, if he doesn't think that what she's talking about is important, then he doesn't treat it like it's important. And she is just always beside herself. Like, she's a huge dramatic person. It's just really funny. It just loans itself to a lot of humor in the story. But it's a good relationship. He's basically just uber teasing it and she's just very clearly a simplistic down to earth like I say what I mean and I mean what I say and why are you talking like this Mr. Bennett how could you do this to me so he essentially is like no I'm not gonna go go your damn self and she's like oh I can't believe you he goes anyway despite telling her that he won't go and he surprises them so 
essentially when he finally does reveal that he's gone in the middle of a really funny conversation where she's whining and crying about the fact that he won't go. And he's like, man, I wish you had told me that you didn't like this guy, you know, sooner I wouldn't have gone off and visited him. And she's like, what? Uh, so it's a really funny surprise. They're all excited. They're going to get to meet him at a ball. Okay. So they go to this ball. It's like a community ball. I forget where it's located. One of the like neighbor's houses or something. They go to this ball. This guy's name is Mr. Bingley. His name is Charles Bingley, by the way. This is their new neighbor. Mr. Bingley has brought his sisters. He's brought two sisters, Mrs. Hurst and her husband, Mr. Hurst, his other sister who's unmarried, her name is Caroline, and his friend, Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy is- That's Colin Firth, right? Yes. Mr. Darcy is, he's very aloof. He is only sticking with his party at this ball. Everyone in this neighborhood, which, by the way, is a pretty middle-ish class neighborhood, they are by no means a rich neighborhood and, in fact, would be considered almost poor, just FYI. So he's a little rude. Everyone in this ball, in this neighborhood, is watching him and the way he's acting here at this ball, and they're like, why is this guy so fucking rude? Like, no one is liking him. They're really liking Bingley. Bingley is a really boisterous dude. He's really lively. Um, he's clearly good-natured and likes to have fun. He's dancing around with everyone. Bingley comes up to his friend at one point, Mr. Darcy, and is like, Darcy, like, why are you being like a fucking doofus? Like, go dance. And Darcy's like, nah. And Bingley is like, come on, like, there's some cute girls here. Like, let's dance. And Darcy's like, you are dancing literally with the only cute girl. <laughs> Bingley, like, everyone else sucks. And Bingley's like, I mean, true, like, she's pretty hot. And this is significant because he's talking about Jane Bennett. He's talking about Elizabeth Bennett's eldest sister, Jane. So Bingley's like, yeah, she, she is. Um, she's gorgeous. I think she's like the most beautiful girl that I've ever fucking seen. But like, you know, her sister's right behind you. She's pretty hot. Like, she's right over there. Like, I can have Jane introduce you. Come on, Darcy. Darcy literally looks over there. He meets her eye. He turns back to Bingley and he's like, yeah, she's all right. But like, I'm cool. Uh, it's not for me. I'm not into charity work. Like, I'm not into like going over and dancing with the girl that nobody else wants to dance with Ew. but like you know go on and like have fun with your dance partners you're wasting your time with me man like go have fun yeah so so this response is just outrageous fuck that guy and lizzie has heard this lizzie very clearly hears this entire conversation she's not happy who would be she's clearly hurt by it but something, this is the event that really establishes for the reader what she's like. She immediately writes it off and makes light of it. She goes to her other friends and immediately tells them about it and starts laughing about it. Like, what a fucking weirdo. Like, hmm, not handsome enough to tempt me. Like, she makes light of the fact that he kind of did that to her rather than letting it kind of fester inside of her. Yeah. And it is obviously ridiculous. And this really sets the tone for Elizabeth. It's not that she's unfeeling. She does feel. And she reveals that in a lot of inner monologue a lot throughout the entire story. But she's very, almost not afraid, but she just doesn't want to. She doesn't want to let that stuff kind of affect her that way. She doesn't think it worthy of making her super upset. 
She wants to just live her life. She's me. Yeah, honestly. Fuck, fuck the <laughs> she, haters. There's a reason that she's the main character, and it's because she's literally the most relatable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Bing Lee even dances with Lizzie after this, after he has this conversation with Darcy. It's probably because he's trying to make up for the fact that Darcy said this. Even if he isn't aware that she heard, he's probably like, I can't believe Darcy just said that. I'm going to go dance with her. <laughs> Yeah. basically um which also shows just like the mentality of charles bingley he's just a really nice guy he's a really nice just kind of carefree dude so in bed that night jane and lizzie are talking they're teasing this is where we establish jane and lizzie's relationship jane's the eldest lizzie is the second eldest jane is a very sweet woman she wants to assume the best of everybody like almost to a fault that she like just cannot accept that anyone would be so evil in any situation she always wants to assume the best of anyone involved in anything lizzie is very sarcastic she is very clever she loves teasing her sister but you can tell that she really loves jane and that she very clearly feels that even though she's younger than jane that it's her duty to kind of protect jane from the world because of jane's sort of like naiveness about everything so in their discussion, they talk about Bingley's sisters, as well as the fact that like Jane danced all night with Bingley and Bingley clearly liked her. Jane thinks that his sisters are all right, but Lizzie got the impression that they were kind of the opposite of that, that they were all more like Darcy than they were like their brother. Um, so really stuck up, kind of aloof, etc. Now we get some commentary from Austin about Bingley and Darcy. We learn more about them. So Bingley is a young rich dude. He wants to have fun. He wants to be with good, fun people. He loves people. He's a people person. Darcy literally is the exact opposite of Charles Bingley. He is very smart. He is very clever. He's very educated. He's also pretty witty and funny. Bingley loves his humor. He loves his wit. He's also a very logical and reasonable person, and Bingley admires that. He also really admires in Darcy the ability to not give a shit about like what others think about him, basically, because Bingley is not like that. He really kind of cares about, you know, if he likes you and he likes the people that he's with, he cares about what they think about him. And he wants them to know that he cares about them and that he is thinking of them. Darcy is just not a people person, so he doesn't give a shit about any of that. The best way I can explain this is Bingley is like a Hufflepuff and Darcy is like the Slytherin best friend. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's that kind no. of relationship. Because Hufflepuffs don't give a fuck, so... Bingley, he gives a fuck, but just in the sense of for the people he cares about. Like, Fair. Darcy just kind of seems to be like, yeah, I care about you, but I'm also going to be what I be. And, like, if you don't like it, I don't fucking care. Yeah. You know? The biggest thing about this conversation that they have is um, Bingley takes Darcy's opinion and his sister's opinions very seriously. They are the closest people that he has in this life. So they are also much more sensible than him and he knows that. So when they give their opinions on something, he listens to them. Okay. Darcy says to him, he thinks Jane's fine. You know, he likes her. His sisters say that they think Jane is sweet. They think Jane is clearly a standout among the neighborhood. And Bingley is really happy about this because Bingley clearly likes her. 
the next thing we do in this story is we meet uh, Lizzie's best friend. Lizzie is hanging out with her best friend. Her name is Charlotte Lucas. They come and like visit the Bennetts at their house. Charlotte is 27 years old. She's super old for a woman. This is old maid territory 100%. At this point, it's pretty insane if she gets married <laughs> because she's just so old. She also doesn't have a lot of prospects. Her family's pretty poor. Her father is like a retired military like knight or something, Sir William Lucas, but they're pretty poor. So they talk about the dance. Mrs. B is bragging at this conversation with her neighbors because she's just beside herself that Bingley clearly favors Jane over everything. And she's trying to not be braggy, but she's putting on too much of a show of trying to not be braggy. Like it's very obvious that she's trying to be like, polite about it so much so that you can see right through it and you're like oh my god miss bennett please please shut up (laughs) just just shut up just stop now time goes on they have a few dinners now and then where the bingleys are present and darcy is present so we're just kind of establishing that they know each other and, and time goes by essentially charlotte tells lizzie at one point in this time lapse that she's worried jane isn't really showing enough affection to encourage bingley lizzie thinks that this is crazy she can really tell that Jane is in love with him. So she's just like, what are you talking about? But Charlotte is like, Lizzie, he doesn't know her like you or I do. Like, you know her because you're her sister. We've all known each other since we were babies. He doesn't know her like that. We can tell, but men aren't like that. They are fragile. Like, you, you, have, to, you have to encourage them or they just get, you know, discouraged real quick. But Lizzie dismisses this. Um, she just doesn't think it's that big of a deal. We learn also in this time lapse that Darcy remembers her from that first ball and despite how he responded to her he's becoming kind of fond of her and he's surprised at himself that he's becoming fond of her he's paying more or charlotte of lizzie of lizzie he is like i remember what i said about her i remember that night but she's i don't know what i was she's pretty like, uh, there's something about her. I'm, I'm drawn to her. She's intelligent. She's witty. He enjoys her wit. The problem with this entire story is Darcy is just socially inept. He has no fucking idea how to talk to a girl. <laughs> so he just doesn't talk to her. He just stands around next to her all the time and is, like, listening to her. But he doesn't do anything about what he's thinking about because he's just socially inept and lizzie is noticing this she's a very observant girl about most things and one time in this she even like calls him out she turns right around because he's been like listening to her conversation for like a half hour or something and she's like "Hmm, did you um like listening to my convo right now (laughs) and he's like uh yeah yeah i i totally did and she's just like cool okay thanks like she's like i don't understand this dude like he's so fucking weird basically there's some dancing happening later at this particular party lizzie like walks by like darcy's talking to one of the neighbors and the neighbor is like oh hey lizzie come over here you should dance with darcy i was just talking to darcy that like he should dance he should like live it up a little bit and she's like uh absolutely not (laughs) I was not walking over here to dance. Please don't assume that I'm looking for a dance partner at every second. I am more than just looking for a man. Thanks. And Darcy just can't resist now. So now he's like, would you do me the honor of having a dance? And she's like, no, 
no, I will not do you the honor of having a dance. <laughs> and she just leaves. And he loves this. He doesn't realize that that's what he's feeling. He's intensely shocked, but he's shocked because like she refused me. Like, yeah, she plays hard to get and it, okay. makes, it makes him want her more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he's thinking about her after this. Like he just stands there after she leaves and he won't respond. So eventually the dude that he's talking to just leaves because he's just like lost in his own thoughts about her. And Caroline, Bingley's sister, comes over and she's trying to talk to him about like a bunch of stuff. And he's just like, I'm sorry, I was not paying attention to anything that you just said. I was just thinking about Lizzie Bennett. And, <laughs> and we learn here in this exchange that Caroline Bingley has a huge thing for Darcy. She wants to be marrying this dude. So she starts teasing him immediately when he says this. And it's an ill-natured teasing. It is very clearly like a snobbish sort of teasing, like, oh, you like her, do you? Well, pray tell. Tell me when I can expect the marriage to be happening. I'm sure you're going to love all of your like poor uncles in Cheapside that are her family or whatever. It's pretty bad. He lets it roll off him. His feelings aren't pronounced enough yet that it makes him too angry about it. And he's used to Caroline acting like this to him. He's used to her being really insufferable. You will learn that this entire novel because she's insufferable all the time. So he just really like lets it roll off of him. He's like, okay, whatever. Shut up, Caroline. <laughs> so all of the sisters, all of the little girl Bennets go off into um, like the next town over. That's a real like town town. We learn here that the younger girls, particularly Lydia and Kitty, so the two youngest, they love officers. They think officers are the handsomest shits they ever did see. And these girls are very silly. Jane gets invited as they're out here to dine with the Bingleys at their house. And this is the first time that this has happened, that Jane has been invited to dine with the Bingleys. It comes from Caroline. So her mom literally looks up into the sky, sees that it's probably going to start raining and pouring because a storm is coming, and is like, okay, Jane, well, you can't take the carriage, so you're going to have to ride over there on horseback. And she literally says, you have to do that so that when it starts raining, you won't be able to ride back on horseback and you'll have to stay the night there. <laughs> Damn, Mom. Yes. Set it up. Set yes. It up. Yes. So women helping women get this girl laid. Yeah. So this turns out exactly as she expected. It starts raining, so she has to stay the night, but it actually backfires a little bit in the sense that it starts raining while Jane is going over there. So Jane gets sick because she rode on horseback all the way to this bitch's house. So she gets really sick and they get a letter in the next day that she can't come back home because she's pretty much too ill and she's, you know, staying in bed and they're taking care of her. Lizzie is like, oh, I'm fucking going over there right the fuck now. So she walks all the way over there, which is pretty crazy <laughs> because she's going to get mud all over herself. It's like a three mile walk, which isn't a long walk if you're not going into company, but it's a pretty long walk if you want to then like sit around and be presentable to talk to people in this day and yeah. age. Also but considering she, you're wearing like 40 pounds worth of dress and yes. like corsets and things. Yes. So she's like, okay, well, I don't give a shit. I'm going. So she goes all by herself. She walks. She walks into the room and just everyone is like, um, hi. <laughs> 
And Darcy explicitly thinks in this moment, damn, like the exercise has kind of like brightened her face up. She looks hot right now. It's a very obvious like, oh shit. That gym glow. Yeah, Yeah, honestly. Honestly, it's that moment. So she attends to her sister. She goes up to her sister immediately. Her sister wants her to stay with her. So Bingley is like, yeah, absolutely, Lizzie, please, please stay, be with her, make her happy. Like, Bingley is super cute about the fact that Jane is sick. He's, like, uber fucking worried about her. (laughs) It's really cute. So Lizzie is just going back and forth on her opinions about these people at this point. She's like, are these people genuine? Like, the girls talk about how much they're worried about her, but then they just, like, go off and, like, start talking about other things. Like, they don't give a shit about her. Bingley is the only one that seems really genuine. Like, he, like, clearly can't stop thinking about the fact that Jane is ill and is just worrying every second of the day about her. And Lizzie finds this really endearing. She really thinks Bingley clearly likes her. And it's a good like. It's not an ill-intended like or anything like that. So anyway, after dinner that night, some other time or whatever, Lizzie leaves dinner to go back up with her sister. Caroline, the Bingley girls, they start criticizing the shit out of Lizzie. Bingley is actually kind of upset about this and Bingley kind of stands up for her and defends her and their family. Darcy agrees with some of the points that Caroline makes, Mm -hmm. but he patently refuses to bash Lizzie. Caroline tries to bait him several times about it, like talking about how ugly she looked and how wild she looked. And he was like, I, nah, I thought she looked hot this morning. This kind of shuts Caroline up because that's absolutely not what she wanted to hear at all. This ends up taking several dates, like almost a week that Jane is sick here. So Lizzie has to spend a bunch of time with these guys. She goes down that night, like particularly right after they were just talking shit about her. And they're playing cards and she's reading a book. She's like, I I don't want to play cards. So Caroline kind of mocks her for this. Bingley just kind of brushes his sister off and goes and like hangs out with Lizzie. And Lizzie likes this. She's like, God, Bingley's like a good dude. Everyone starts talking about Darcy's estate. They start talking about Darcy's sister. He has a younger sister that is his ward because their parents are dead. And Lizzie is just very interested in this conversation. She's learning about Darcy, learning about like the fact that they are orphans, that, you know, his parents are dead. He takes care of his sister who is now like 15 or 16 or something like that. She's just learning about him. There's just a really, really funny exchange. You don't need to know the particulars, but essentially Lizzie very cleverly like turns their conversation around on Caroline and makes Caroline essentially look like a fool without anyone realizing it except for Lizzie and Darcy. (laughs) And Darcy is just like, okay, like, damn. So when Lizzie leaves, Caroline doesn't know what Lizzie did, but she can still feel that she like lost that conversation. So she starts like talking shit really hard about Lizzie again. And she's just like, Lizzie's just one of those girls that like, you know, she talks shit about other girls because she's trying to make herself look better. And like, that's just like a shitty thing to do, which is hysterical irony, because that is literally exactly what Caroline is in the process of doing in that comment. And Darcy knows this. In fact, turns straight to her and says, I don't really care for those type of tactics by any woman. They're all annoying when they do this. And she just shuts right the hell up at that. They spend some more time together because Jane is still sick. In fact, she's so sick that it's been several days Lizzie writes to her mom and is like, you should come and visit her. So 
Mrs. B comes with their other sisters to make sure she's okay. This is a nightmare of a visit. <laughs> um, Mrs. B is very blunt. I've told you about this. She doesn't have a filter, like really at all. And she doesn't like Darcy at this point. Darcy has slighted one of her daughters very publicly, very rudely, and no one likes his behavior in this neighborhood. So she is very pointedly rude to Darcy a bunch of times, so much that Lizzie feels like she has to defend him. The biggest thing about this is that the the younger girls are like Bingley you should throw a ball here when Jane is better and he's like yeah fuck yeah I'll do that like name the date and they're like ah yes basically more days go by Caroline is just incessantly all over Darcy like at every moment of the day all of this is establishing that Caroline is hugely jealous of Lizzie because she has a huge thing for Darcy Darcy is not at all repelled by what Caroline thinks is appalling behavior on Lizzie's part and is actually very attracted to Lizzie the longer she stays around. They have lots of interactions where they have very interesting, clever exchanges and conversations and she's intelligent and she doesn't kowtow to him. She doesn't give a shit about how rich he is. She doesn't give a shit about what his opinion is about anything. She tells you what her opinion is instead and she doesn't give in for, you know, like social levity's sake. If she's having a conversation, she'll ask you a question about what you just said. She doesn't care if it's socially acceptable and he is very drawn to this. In fact, so much so, so that he acknowledges to himself that he's in a bit of danger here, that he can feel himself actually falling in love with this woman. And he knows that there's no possible socially acceptable way that he can be involved with her. She is not of his rank. She has way too many cons associated with her social status, and he is much too essentially rich and uh, important to associate himself with someone like her. So he feels this, and it scares him, and he starts trying to even, like, stop talking to her (laughs) to, like, quell it, and he can't. He just gets pulled back in, like, over and over again. Eventually, Jane gets better which is great. (laughs) Um, And Lizzie and Jane are like, all right, we're going to go now, basically. When they go home, a new sort of turn in the narrative begins. When they go home, we meet someone named Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins is the Bennett girl's second cousin, okay? He is a clergyman. He is going to be inheriting their estate because he is the next male relation. So their relationship with Mr. Collins is a little fucking weird because he's taking their house even though he is not part of their immediate family and everyone's fucking weirded out by that. But Mr. Collins has written a letter to them saying, hey, I'm going to fucking come and like hang out with you guys for a week, basically. And they're like, uh, fuck, okay. So he comes over and Mr. Collins is one of the most boring, insufferable people that has probably ever been born or created on the face of the planet. He is obsessed with his patroness. So he is the clergyman for the entire neighborhood that belongs to a lady, Catherine de Bourgh. 
She is very high standing in society. She's a lady and she is the reason that he has a job. She is the reason that anything happens for him. So he's obsessed with her and everything she says and does and wants he is just like there yesterday to do it because he, you know, he is just like that. He's just also very socially inept, very obtuse, and very overinflated in his own ego because of the fact that Lady Catherine de Bourgh is his patroness. He takes that and is like, I am the clergyman for Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Hmm. So I can talk to Lady Catherine for you because I, you know, get to talk to high society. And you probably are very just jealous of that. But that's okay because I am a humble clergyman and I will help you, you know, that type of fucking feel that you're just like, could you please stop talking because otherwise I'm going to shove a hammer in your face, <laughs> probably. Essentially, you can tell pretty much immediately the reason that he is here this week. He's here to marry one of the Bennett girls. He's probably here to marry one of the Bennett girls because it makes everyone happy. His dad, who is the relation that is the reason that he is inheriting the estate, and Mr. Bennett had a huge falling out because of the fact that Mr. Bennett doesn't want to fucking give his estate to Mr. Collins. He wants to give his estate to one of his fucking daughters, but he can't do that because it's just not how it works. So they are at odds, and Mr. Collins is here to marry a Bennett girl because this makes everyone happy. Then one of the daughters does get to inherit the Longbourn estate because Mr. Collins is doing that. So if we marry, everyone's happy. We're only second cousins. It's fine. You know, royalty marry their sisters and stuff nowadays. You know what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> oh, ugh. Anyway, first Mr. Collins is like Jane's the hottest, which is something she's known for. I'll absolutely take Jane. But Mrs. Bennett is like, mm, yeah, Mr. Collins, it's not official yet or anything, but like there's a dude in the neighborhood that is like fucking into her. She's probably going to be engaged soon. Like it's, it's pretty much a sure thing. And he's like, oh, that fucking sucks. And she's like, but, but Lizzie, look at Lizzie. She's hot too. I mean, she's, she's great. She's, she's just like Jane, except not, but you know. And Collins is like, oh no, yeah, she's definitely hot. Yeah, all right, yeah, that's fine. I'll do that. <laughs> so they go to town again, eventually, while Collins is here. While they're there, the girls meet with several officers, particularly the young ones, because like I said, the young ones are into officers. One of the officers comes, he's a new guy. He's gorgeous, he's very agreeable. His name is Mr. Wickham. And immediately Lizzie is like, who that over there? That's a hot man over there right there. It's basically Lizzie's reaction. Lizzie is like, damn, that dude is fine. Yeah. AF. She doesn't really care about a man's station in life. She cares if the man is interesting, if he's clever, if she can have a conversation with him, and if he's a nice dude. Yeah. So the fact that he's an officer is not a thing. What she notices about him is, who are you hot? And then he starts speaking and she's like, oh shit, and you can speak and not be a weirdo about it. Yeah. So Lizzie is into this, like immediately. She's like, hello, Mr. Wickham, how do you do, essentially. And he responds pretty agreeably back, very favorably, enough that Lizzie's kind of like, yes, like, all right, this guy's cool. While they're here, this is still their first meeting, BTW, who comes trotting into town but Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley on their horses. And Bingley's like, 
hey, Bennett's, like, we were just going over to your house to, like, say hi to you, like, hey, what's up? And everyone's like, oh, hi, these are our new friends. And Darcy comes up because he was going to say something to Lizzie because he literally cannot help himself. But he sees Mr. Wickham, and Mr. Wickham sees him, and they both immediately freeze over. They both go pale, and then Wickham, like, very tensely, like, nods his head at Darcy, and Darcy barely responds back to him, and then runs the fuck away without saying anything on his horse, which is just fucking strange. It's so weird that Bingley has to make an excuse for him and ride off after him. And they were like, that was fucking weird. So like, as they're like walking to their next thing, cause now the officers are hanging out with them and they're like going off to do something together. Lizzie and her aunt are like, did you see that? Yeah, I fucking saw that. Did you see that? Like, that was fucking weird. I wonder what that was about. Basically, they have a conversation like that. So they hang out with the officers pretty much all day. Lizzie's super having a good time, basically, with them. And they end up staying in town because they're visiting one of their aunts or something there. And their aunt is like, you guys should all stay for dinner. So they stay for dinner. At this dinner, Wickham continues being charming AF. Wickham then at one point I mean he's also very clearly by the way favoring Lizzie like he's choosing to sit next to her as opposed to everyone else all the time he's choosing to talk to her a whole lot so at dinner Wickham brings Darcy up himself because Lizzie this whole time is like I want to ask him about this I want to ask him about this but it is not prudent to ask him about this I am so curious I need to know and he brings it up himself and is like so, like, um, how long has Darcy been in town? And Lizzie's like, oh, you know, like a month or something like that, you know, with Mingley. And Wickham is like, yeah, um, I know him really well. I am the son of his uh, steward from his estate. Like, his dad was a great man, and my dad was his dad's steward, and I'm, you know, his steward's son. And, like, me and Darcy are really close. Like, we were all practically brothers. His dad is, like, my godfather. And she's like, wow, Really? And he's like, yeah, I'm assuming you're surprised because I'm assuming you saw like how we responded to each other today. And she's like, yeah, I maybe saw that. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, um, we don't fucking talk anymore. And she's like, why? And he goes, because he fucking did me dirty AF. So I don't fucking talk to him anymore. And she's like, excuse me, What what are you talking about? So Wickham tells her that he was so beloved by the late Mr. Darcy, Darcy's father, that he was left part of the inheritance for the estate. It was a small piece of inheritance that was meant for him to go into the church, basically. And that he, Mr. Wickham, was very excited for this, was very sad when the late Mr. Darcy passed. But when he did, Darcy, because Darcy is very jealous of Wickham and how much his father loved Wickham like his own son, he withheld the inheritance from him and said that the way that my father's will was written uh, is ambiguous. And it is ambiguous enough that there's a few conditions that need to be met for me to have to legally give you this and you don't meet them. So I'm not going to. So Darcy out here being a fuckboy. Yes. So that is what Wickham tells Lizzie. And Lizzie is like, are you fucking serious? And he's like, yeah, because this is a scandal. If people know this in society, Darcy's reputation would 100% be ruined as a person. This is just not a good look for a rich dude. 
he would have probably gotten huge backlash from everyone in his entire estate, from everyone in his neighborhood that he like looks after. She is just dumbfounded that she hasn't heard this, if this is true. She's like, how do people still talk to him in civilized society? How do people not shun him? This is reprehensible that he's done this. And he's like, oh, because no one knows. Wickham's like, I don't tell people about this. I just don't talk to him anymore. And she's like, why? Why would you ever do that? Why would you not be exposing him to everyone you can talk about? And he's like, I just loved his dad too much. His dad was a great dude. It would just really hurt me to do that to him. And like I said, Darcy and I, we were like brothers. Like we're around the same age. I did care for him. It hurts me that this is how it is. I want it to be different. So I just, I just can't. It's just not for me. I've just kind of accepted that this is my lot in life. And, uh, you know, I avoid him as much as I can. And we live our lives, basically. Uh, He's like, I'm assuming eventually it's going to get out how awful of a person he is because like he just won't be able to hide it, you know, enough. He'll piss off the wrong person and somebody will expose him. He's like, but I'm never going to be able to do it. I just, I'm too close to the family. It just hurts too much to me. Lizzie is just like, who taken in by all this? Like, holy shit, she didn't realize how much she had started considering Darcy to be not as disagreeable as she had thought he was until Wickham says this. Wickham says this and she's like, fuck, I should have listened to my first instinct. I knew he was an asshole the moment we fucking met. Now it is confirmed and now she is just like, oh, I hope I never fucking see this dude again into that type of attitude. The other important thing we learn at this dinner, by the way, I have to say this before we go, is that in conversation, Collins reveals that Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who is Collins' patroness, is Mr. Darcy's aunt. And we learn here that according to Mr. Collins and according to Wickham, Wickham agrees with this, Mr. Darcy is expected to marry his cousin, Lady Catherine de Bourgh's daughter, Anne de Bourgh. So there's just a bunch of shit that we learn about Darcy in this. Okay. So they're going to the ball, right? Remember Bingley is throwing a ball? Mm -hmm. Wickham is like, yeah, I'm going to be there because all of the militia are going to be there. They were invited. Lizzie is like, you know, Darcy's going to be there. Like, are you going to be okay? And he's like, oh yeah, I'll be fine. Like if he wants to fucking avoid me, he can avoid me. I'm going to live my life. Like that's up to him. And she's like, all right, cool. So before they go, Mr. Collins, who has been like trying very hard to get all up on Lizzie ever since he decided he's going to marry her. Mr. Collins is like, you have to promise you're going to dance the first two dances with me. And Lizzie is like, Jesus Christ. Sure. Okay. Yeah, whatever. So they go to the dance. Wickham is not there. She eventually hears from one of his friends in the militia that he was like, oh, he ended up having some business that he had to run off to. Like, he just couldn't be here. Uh, He wanted me to tell you he was really sorry. He knows you were, like, expecting him. And she's just like, ugh, fine. Darcy surprises the shit out of her at this ball. The only reason this happens is because she's not thinking a lick about Darcy. She's thinking about Wickham. She's thinking about Collins because Collins is being annoying and all up on her ass. And she can tell that something fishy is going on. So Darcy basically taps her on the shoulder and surprises the shit out of her and is like, will you dance this next dance with me? And she's like, "Uh, yeah. And (laughs) and he leaves immediately. And she's like, fuck, fuck, damn it. Why did he just like surprise me? Shit, I should have like taken a moment. But now she has to dance with him. 
she's dancing with Darcy. She cannot help literally despite herself to talk to him because it's just Lizzie. She just talks. She loves to talk. He is very taken in by her cleverness, like he always is, but he can't help ask about them being in town. And like, oh, do you often go to town? He's very awkward about it. It's very clear he's meaning to insinuate when he saw Wickham there. And she's like, oh, yeah, we go all the time. In fact, I just met this new guy, Wickham. Have you heard of him? And the conversation just goes downhill very quickly. Um, uh, They have a conversation about Darcy's temperament. Again, uh, they've had a conversation about it many times before. She likes to tease him about it excessively, but now she's not teasing. Now she's very pointed because now she, you know, according to her, has a very clear reason to worry about Darcy's actual like personality and character. He is like, why are you fucking asking me all these questions about me? Like, what, what is your problem, basically? And she's like, I just can't, I can't figure you out. And he's like, okay, well, when you do figure that out, can you like, uh, <laughs> let me know? And she's like, no, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And he's very displeased. They end the dance. Caroline comes up eventually at one point and she tries to sell very coldly Lizzie off of Wickham, which is very interesting because you would think Caroline would want Lizzie to lean into Wickham because this eliminates Lizzie as a rival for her. But Caroline comes up and says, hey, just so you know, Wickham is not a cool dude. Like, I remember that, like, he was a pretty shitty dude um, when all of that, like, you know, Will stuff went down. She's trying to sell him off because Lizzie hates Caroline, honestly. It honestly has the opposite effect. So Lizzie is just like, yeah, and who did you hear that from? Mr. Darcy? Hmm, yeah, obviously. Obviously, he's not a cool dude because you heard it from Mr. Darcy. So the other thing that is happening at this ball is that her mom is wandering around left and right and is basically saying like, oh, I can't wait until Bingley asks my daughter to marry him because it's obviously going to happen and the wedding is going to be wonderful and it's all just going to be la-di-da and it's very embarrassing her behavior is very not, not, cool. not so, yeah, it's just not socially acceptable. No chill. Um, but she's very drunk. Yeah, she has no chill. There, that is exactly the description. She has zero, she has negative chill about it. And everyone can hear her and it's just super embarrassing. So in the morning, they finally go home. It's after the ball. Collins proposes to her. Lizzie is like, no, absolutely the fuck not. And he's super obtuse about it. Like, oh, you're just playing hard to get. And she's like, no, no, I'm really not. Like, really, <laughs> bruh. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to marry you. Like, and nah, he's dude. just like, ain't to be convinced. So she just runs away. She's just like, you're not listening to me. So she runs. And it's a big hullabaloo because Mrs. Bennett is like, come back here at once and marry this man. And she's just out. She's already almost out of England at this point or something. <laughs> like, yeah. she's like, if I could be in America right now, I would be. So Miss B comes to get Mr. Bennett and is like, force your daughter to marry this woman or I'll never see her again. And so Mr. Bennett is like, well, Lizzie, you have a really unfortunate choice now. You're going to have to be estranged from one of your parents from this day forward because your mother will never see you again if you don't marry him. And I will never see you again if you do marry him. (laughs) Damn. Yes. So Lizzie is like, thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Great. And this settles the matter because if a father doesn't bless the marriage, then the marriage is done. It's not going to happen. 
essentially. Again, fuck the patriarchy. Yeah. They get a letter later on this day that all of the Bingleys and Mr. Darcy have suddenly quit their house to go to their house in London. And they don't expect to be back anytime soon. And this is very odd. Everyone is like, uh, what the fuck? Why? And Jane is very upset by this letter, but she doesn't tell people the particulars about it. So Lizzie follows her ass, of course, up to her room and is like, what the fuck? Why have they left? He has not proposed to you yet, and that is just absurd. And so Jane basically reveals in this letter that Caroline pretty much really heavily insinuates in this letter that her brother, Mr. Bingley, is probably going to be engaged to Darcy's sister soon, that they love her to death, that he couldn't bear to be parted from her, basically, and so that's why they're going back to London, and, you know, she just hopes that you're happy for my brother because he cares about your company so much, and you've become a dear friend to us, yada, yada, yada. So Jane is like, is that not fucking clear enough? Like, that's why they fucking left. (laughs) They left because he doesn't give a shit about me and never has. And that I've just been a fucking idiot this whole time. And Lizzie is just astounded by this. She cannot believe it. Like it goes against everything that she thinks that she knows about people. She considers herself to be someone who can really, really easily read people. And she's just dumbfounded. So it's a huge mess. Also in this mess, Mr. Collins goes and proposes to Charlotte. Lizzie's best friend, the 27-year-old old maid. And Charlotte accepts because Charlotte is a 27-year-old oh, fucking maid. 27, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so Charlotte comes over and is just like, Lizzie, like, I know that this is kind of fucking awkward, but like, you know, this is an advantageous marriage for me. Like, I'm not getting any other fucking prospects. And like, I just don't want you to think that I'm going to be unhappy because that is Lizzie's first thought. Lizzie is like, Charlotte, you and I talked shit about this guy for days on end the entire time that he's been here. You're going to marry this dude? This dude that we were talking shit about? And she's like, I'm not unhappy with this choice. I'm okay with this. She goes, you, you have always talked about you'll never marry unless you're in love with the person and you can stand them, but I'm not like you. I don't need that for my marriage. I am too old. I need to stop being a burden on my parents and I'm okay with this. So if you love me, if you're really a friend, then you are cool with this decision for me. And Lizzie, it's hard pill for her to swallow, but she does. And she's like, you know what, Charlotte, you're right. You're right. So, okay. If this is what you want and you are happy with this, awesome. I'm super happy for you too. And Charlotte is like, yay. And she's like, you have to come visit me. You have to come visit me after, you know, we've been settled and stuff like that. And Lizzie's like, yeah, fucking absolutely. Well, yeah, you're going to be settled in my house. So. <laughs> well, yeah, eventually. So they, they currently are going to be residing in Mr. Collins's estate in the neighborhood that Lady Catherine de Berg runs, basically her parish. And they'll be there, of course, until Mr. Bennett dies, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett die. Then eventually, yes, she will inherit Longbourn with Mr. Collins. So there's just been a long time in the middle of all of this because Charlotte and Collins like actually marry. It's just, whoa. Uh, And then they go off and a lot of time goes by and it's very obvious that Bingley really isn't coming back, which was something that she was kind of waiting for Lizzie. Like everyone is just like, whoa. So then we meet Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. Mr. Gardner is Mrs. Bennett's brother. 
So this is an aunt and uncle. Okay. And Mrs. Gardner is like, Hey, she comes and visits and she's like, Jane, you should come back with me. Get a change of scenery. Like come and hang out with us in London because that's where they live. They live in London. So as she's here, like time is going by and Lizzie and Wickham are seeing a lot of each other as well. They're getting flirty, but the problem is that Wickham is pretty poor. Obviously he's just a militiaman. And so Lizzie is kind of like, you know, I get it. I get that we're probably not going to end up being together. And I'm okay with that because I don't think I'm in love with him or anything. But like, I'm cool with just kind of hanging out with him and like enjoying the attention because he's also like paying attention to uh, this like woman who is inheriting a shit ton of money. Suddenly, like he didn't give a shit about this like girl until like a week ago or something her rich relative died and she's now inheriting like 5,000 pounds or something. And now he's like all over her. So she's like, I get it. You know, I can still be friends with him. He and I are kind of, we're cool. We're cool. Basically. Lizzie goes eventually to visit Charlotte. And when she goes to visit Charlotte, they go to dine at Lady Catherine de Bourgh's house. And at Lady Catherine de Bourgh's, you learn how very condescending this lady is. She is a lady, so her opinion and her conduct is above reproach. But it becomes pretty obvious really quickly that Lady Catherine de Bourgh is not a whole lot different than, like, Mrs. Bennet. She's very blunt to the point of almost rudeness at times and is just very uncompromisingly like my opinion matters more than anybody else's in this room and what I say goes because now I'm a lady. She just has no fucking social grace. Mm -hmm. The next time they go and have a dinner at Lady Catherine de Bourgh's when Lizzie is visiting, Mr. Darcy and his cousin, Colonel Fitzwilliam, have suddenly showed up to visit. And Lizzie is like, of all the fucking luck, cool, great. We meet Colonel Fitzwilliam, who is Darcy's cousin, and Colonel Fitzwilliam is pretty amiable. While Lizzie is here, and now Mr. Darcy is here, she's noticing that Darcy here doesn't seem quite as aloof and kind of standoffish and, like, weird as he did when he was in her neighborhood. He's a lot more comfortable with himself. It kind of surprises her. But remember, she is very turned off by Darcy because of what Wickham has told her. So Fitzwilliam likes Lizzie, and it's pretty clear for Lizzie, and it's also pretty clear for Darcy. So when Darcy kind of realizes that his cousin likes her, he like inserts himself <laughs> into every interaction that she and Fitzwilliam are having because obviously Darcy is like, mm, no. They have a very flirty exchange. It's the most openly flirty exchange they've had in the entire novel at this point. And it's also notable because in this exchange, Darcy admits that when he first met her, when he was first at their neighborhood and stuff, and everybody disliked him, he admits that he acted kind of stupidly, that his behavior was a little ridiculous. And he kind of tries to explain himself by going, you know, you're right, like, it was rude of me to be that way you have to understand that there are some people who are very good at talking to other people, even people that they don't know. But I am not one of those people. Like I, I don't have that gift. So for me, I really struggle with talking to people that I don't know. And that has been something that has plagued me my entire life, essentially. So I'm, I'm pretty used to people, you know, thinking that I'm an asshole. <laughs> 
sadly, because I, I try, but I am just never good at it. I never say the right thing or I don't say anything because I'm too nervous and it just kind of fucks everything up. It's a very open and frank conversation in which Lizzie kind of tries to give him some advice. She's like, okay, well, you know how you fix that? You fucking practice. <laughs> you practice by talking to people more you don't just like accept it and then never continue doing it and then just expect people to like suddenly stop responding to you in that way they're always going to take that behavior as stupid you have to practice until you get better at it and he's like you know what you're right that's accurate you're right So while Darcy and Fitzwilliam are here, they are constantly coming over to hang out with Lizzie because both of them are clearly like all up on her dick. So they're constantly like coming over and hanging out with her, walking with her, talking with her. And Lizzie is very confused by the attention from Mr. Darcy. And she obviously still doesn't understand really how to feel about him because of what Wickham has told her. But she's having a hard time reconciling that with hanging around with him. And this reaches a pinnacle. So we now reach kind of like the first of two climaxes of this book. So she learns from Fitzwilliam in one conversation that Darcy had told him that he had saved his very good friend Bingley from an imprudent marriage. And Lizzie is like, what? And he's like, yeah, Darcy was telling me that like he was kind of in danger of getting into it with this like girl and it was just not a good match and he kind of like talked him out of it and like it went well (laughs) your face right now (laughs) uh and she's like do you remember why (laughs) he did this like what was wrong with the girl and he's like uh from what i remember from the conversation with darcy was something about like her family you know there was just some objections about her and like her status and stuff like that and lizzie's like oh cool cool Uh, i'm sure sure yeah okay uh i have to go now (laughs) and she basically runs off and is just fucking beside herself this upsets her a lot it upsets her so much that that night when they have to go off to dinner with Lady Catherine de Berg, she doesn't feel well enough. She has a headache and she begs to stay home. And they're like, okay, you know, you stay home, you feel better. So she thinks she's going to be by herself for the rest of the night to wallow in depression, essentially. And Darcy bursts the fuck in <laughs> suddenly in the middle of her evening where he should be at dinner and he is not. He is now suddenly here. He's here because he is worried about her being sick. And he's like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I, I like, I just have a fucking headache. You were the last person I want to fucking see right now. Why are you here? So he doesn't leave. He walks around the room. It's very awkward. He is super worked up about something. And finally he turns around and is like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I'm fucking in love with you. And I like need to marry you. And he essentially tells her how he has been in love with her for months now and that he's been trying to squash it because of her issues, the fact that she's poor and the fact that she has a bunch of ill relatives that are just not socially acceptable and like how bad of a match it's going to be that like there's all these problems so he's been trying to like fight it but he just can't fight it anymore and he just has to marry her and he proposes with the very clear belief that she will accept him and she is like okay um 
thank you for liking me. <laughs> like, she has a really hard time trying to figure out the best response right after he does this. And she's like, but no. is <laughs> basically, like, what she says. And he is like, no. She's like, yeah, no. Mm -hmm. And he's like, uh, can, can I ask why? <laughs> and she's like, can I ask why? You thought that I was going to say yes to you and you told me that you were going to marry me despite your better judgment? Like, despite all of the shitty things that are wrong with me, you are just going to marry me? Like, and you expected me to say yes to that? And he is just absolutely flabbergasted but she's like but you know what no while we're on the subject of asking each other why why would i say yes to you when you fucked my sister over hard fucking core yeah i fucking know about that bitch and he's like uh i mean yeah like i, I did I, I i stopped bingley from proposing to your sister yeah but like why does that matter is his essential response and she's like that is one of the reasons why but also even despite all of that why would i fucking say yes to you when you are a fucking bitch ass motherfucker who ruined mr wickham's life just ruined his fucking life in the worst fucking way that any human could ever act and this just like darcy is the emoji of the exploding head in that moment. Like you can just see that this just is beyond any comprehension for him. And he's like, I'm sorry, we're talking about Wickham? And she's like, yeah, why don't you fucking try to explain that to me? Hmm? And he's like, why do you fucking care about Wickham? Like, he's very obviously fucking jealous. Like my fucking relationship with Wickham has nothing the fuck to do with you. Why do you fucking care how I treat him? And she's like, because you like, I would never marry somebody who's as shitty as that fucking why essentially and the entire exchange is just they really honestly both say just some of the worst shit that you could possibly say to each other he is just like you know maybe this would have gone a little differently if i hadn't fucking pissed you off because i had been honest about the fact that you know you're a fucking poor girl from fucking cheap side or wherever that doesn't have good relationships and i just was going to be honest about that and that pissed you off and she's like no see don't mistake me here you just made it really easy for me to refuse you. I would have refused you regardless. The way you did it just fucking made it easy for me to not give a shit about how I affected your feelings because I've hated you ever since I fucking met you, essentially. And he's just like, cool. And he just leaves. Like, it's grueling. It's just hard to read. And Lizzie just breaks down and basically sobs all fucking night about it. She wakes up in the morning and she's like, I have to get some fucking air. She goes out and Darcy's out there waiting for her. And before she can run away, essentially, he's like, I'm not talking to you. I just have a letter. Would you please read it? Okay, bye. And he leaves. <laughs> so she's like, oh, okay. Uh, and she reads this letter. And this letter is the linchpin that changes the entirety of the story. In this letter, Darcy tells her two things. He says, you accused me of two really important things that, you know, I wouldn't be imposing myself on you if these two things didn't sort of offend my honor, like as a gentleman in society. And I really don't feel like I cannot explain myself with regards to them. He was like, I stopped your sister and Bingley from getting married because I really didn't feel like your sister liked him. 
he said, when I realized that Bingley was super attached to her, I started watching her and I couldn't see anything in her behavior that told me that she liked him as much as he did. And this coupled with all of the like bad shit associated with her, I was just like, he's going to end up hurt. He likes her way more than I've ever seen him like anyone else. And I knew that out of all of the times I'd ever seen him be with someone, this would actually be a time that would hurt him. It would hurt him when she didn't like him. And then your parents and, you know, the rest of your family and your mom in fucking particular started yelling about how they were going to be fucking engaged before he had ever even said anything. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't let this happen. It'll hurt him too much. So I stopped him from doing that. I convinced him that she didn't like him because I believed that. I did. And so that's why I did that. You can think about me what you will for that. I did it for those reasons. And I'm not sorry that I did that because that's what I felt was happening. And that's what I thought was the right thing to do for my friend. And he says, the other thing that you accused me of has to deal with Wickham. And he's like, I really don't want to explain this. And I haven't. But the stuff that you know, and the fact that I clearly was fucking in love with you, I I can't let this slide. He's like, so let me tell you about what is really going on between me and Wickham. You are probably heard about Wickham being my dad's steward's son. And that is all true. Probably heard about him being my dad's godson. And that is also true. What he probably changed in this story is that when my dad died, by that time, Wickham had already been living in a way that was pretty fucking bad. He's a gambler and he's not very reputable with how he treats ladies. But I wasn't going to do anything about that or speak any ill about him because my dad loved him. So I just wasn't going to do anything. When my dad left him his inheritance, I had stopped talking to him for a long time after that, but I wrote him about it. And he said he didn't want to go into the church, that he would just rather me give him a flat money, essentially in exchange for what he had inherited, just basically a flat sum exchange. So I gave it to him. In fact, I gave him more than what he was asking for. And I thought that was going to be it. That was the agreement, was that that was going to be it. But when he gambled that away, because he's a gambler, he came back to me and demanded that I pay him more because of reasons. And I was like, no, you're not getting more. This is not okay. And I didn't fucking give him any more of my dad's money. He got pissed off. He fucking left. And then he spent the next couple months scheming how to get back at me. And this is how he tried to get back at me. Last summer, he worked out a way to where the governess of my young sister allowed him to be able to visit her when they were off at their like summer cottage or whatever, unbeknownst to me, so that he could pretend to make love to her, that he wanted to marry her and convince her to elope with him. She was 15. I literally, by happenstance, came a couple days earlier than I was supposed to to visit her that summer, and that's the only reason she didn't run off with him. And that would have destroyed her and destroyed the reputation of my entire family. When I got there, she couldn't lie to me because she's a wonderful young girl and she just didn't want to. And she wanted me to know because she thought that this was a good thing and she was happy. And I had to be the asshole that told her that Wickham didn't love her. And I had to meet with him and tell him that I now knew everything that was going to happen. And he fucking left and never spoke to her or me again. 
and I had to pick up the mess that he fucking made with my sister. That's my relationship with Wickham. So Fuck that guy. Yeah. He's like, so yeah, I don't fucking like him. I don't fucking think I have a reason to like him, basically. But I don't... Yeah, he raped a 15-year-old. So... Which, I mean, at the time, like, 15 was, like, you were an adult already. People were getting married and having babies at 15. She, and she's on the cusp, essentially. The yeah. yeah if, like she, if she had been made a proposal by a reputable man, nobody would have blinked an eye. Yeah, but if she, she had eloped, married. if she had eloped, and not just eloped with anyone, but if she had eloped with a guy of lower class, that would have ruined her. She would have been yeah. shunned from society. Yeah. So he's like, he literally did this 100% just to get revenge on me. And his revenge would have been revenge. That would have destroyed me. He would have yeah. won, basically. It's by absolute luck that I showed up early and found out that it was happening before it did. So Lizzie reads this fucking letter and is just like, literally 24 hours ago, Darcy was the exploding head emoji. 24 hours later, Lizzie is now the exploding head emoji because- Lizzie is now rewinding, essentially, like it happens in the narrative. She's rewinding all of the stuff that has happened in the story up until now and now seeing it through Darcy's eyes and seeing the stuff that she didn't pick up on at the time, in particular with Wickham, that now falls into place for her. Yeah. And she doesn't want to believe it. She really doesn't. And she tries to find places where she doesn't have to believe it. But the more she thinks about it, she's a smart girl, the more she realizes that this is the true account. That out of the two accounts, this one is the one that aligns more with the truth. Yeah, I'm hoping she's remembering that conversation she had with Charlotte, where Charlotte was like, "Uh, That is one of the things that she particularly remembers when he talks about Jane. That's the thing that she she wants to hold on to the most. Like the Wickham thing, she's a smart girl, and she's actually able to really accept that one easier than she accepts the Jane thing. She wants to be pissed off really hard because she loves her sister and she knows how much her sister's hurting like her sister's depressed she's hanging out in london with her aunt at the moment but she's fucking depressed that's been like a subplot that like as she's writing to lizzie back and forth lizzie and her aunt both are writing and talking to each other about how like she's trying to play up that she's okay but she's really not And while Jane was in London at this time, I didn't touch on this, but Caroline comes to visit her because Jane visits Caroline while she's in London because she thinks they're friends. So when Jane goes to visit Caroline, she doesn't see Bingley there. She only sees Caroline, but Caroline is a bitch to her. Caroline Barely tolerable. Caroline is Bingley's sister. Okay. The one who's like in love with Darcy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she goes to visit Caroline because Jane thinks they're friends. Caroline's a bitch to her. So Jane goes home and is like, holy shit, she's way different than she was when we were back in our neighborhood. Caroline returns the visit because it would be imprudent not to socially. But when she returns the visit, she's very cold and she makes it very clear. This is the last time I'm probably going to be here because I I don't even feel like I need to explain myself because I don't have to because I'm a higher class than you essentially. So fuck off basically. And it's devastating to Jane. So like Lizzie really wants to cling on to that, but she can't. She remembers that conversation with Charlotte where Charlotte was like, Jane isn't encouraging him enough and lizzie is like she's she was fucking right i should have known like i should have figured that out yeah so now lizzie is like 
Jesus, I have no idea what to fucking think about any of this. She leaves because Darcy and Fitzwilliam left right after he gave her that letter. He gives her the letter and they like get on the fucking carriage and leave, basically. Yeah. So she doesn't have any way to talk to him about any of this. So she's leaving Charlotte now. She goes and picks up Jane from London and they go home. And she's just like, okay, well, my life sucks now, and uh, this is my own doing, apparently, so I guess I'm just going to have to live in it. So Lizzie tells Jane about Wickham and Darcy, because Jane is just her best friend, her oldest sister. So Jane knows, but she doesn't tell anybody else, because Lizzie understands, like, how much Darcy was putting in her hands telling her this, because if she explained anything about this, it could ruin the Darcys. Like, it's not a good story for Georgiana, the sister. So she doesn't tell anyone about anything else, but she does tell Jane. That's it. So Lydia, the youngest girl, the silly ass one that everyone is like, oh my God, she's going to kill us all. She's just too much. She has been invited to go and hang out with one of her friends who is the wife of a colonel at a military base by herself. And Lizzie's like, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. You should not let her go. Dad, Mr. B, you should not let her fucking go. This is not okay. That's a recipe for rape. And he's like, we will literally have no fucking peace if she doesn't get to go. And he's like, it'll be okay. This will be the moment where she realizes how insignificant she is in life. And then hopefully it curbs her. And Lizzie's like, that's not going to happen. That's not how this works. But he won't listen to her. So Lydia goes. She goes off to Brighton. Wickham is also gone at this point. He was hanging out a little bit when she went back home. But now, like, Lizzie doesn't really know how to (laughs) act around him or anything like that. So it's just kind of awkward. And then he just leaves. Yeah time goes by like suddenly it's almost the summer again and lizzie is now going on a trip with mr and mrs gardner the lawyers who lived in london where jane was there for a while they are going on like a summer trip basically like a summer road trip they're just like we're gonna like run around the country we're gonna hang out it's gonna be fucking fun yeah and they're like lizzie like you've been fucking depressed lately why don't you come and like hang out with us and lisa's like yes absolutely that's what i fucking need right now yeah So she like goes and they're like taking a trip and they're like, hey, while we're going through Derbyshire, which is a neighborhood, basically, I want to visit Pemberley, which is Darcy's estate. And Lizzie's like, let's not do that. And she's like, why not? Like, come on. Like the grounds are great. Like when they say go and visit a state, it's not just like you're going to someone's house randomly. It is the house, but it's like an entire like fucking village almost yeah there's forests there's ponds there's grounds and a bunch of shit that you can do and then there's of course the house but there's other buildings it's just like a big ass thing she's like come on i want to go see pemberley and lizzie's like well are the darcy's there right now and and they like ask around town when they get into derbyshire and they're like oh no the no the darcy's aren't there they're at their like summer place somewhere else Mm -hmm. and lizzie's like oh okay okay sure yeah okay yeah we fine we can go to pemberley that's fine because she's just like as long as darcy's not gonna be there i'm cool (laughs) because i have no fucking idea what to say to that guy so they go to pemberley they're walking around they meet his housekeeper and the housekeeper is this old lady who's super cute and is just like, Mr. Darcy is the best guy in the world. I've known him since he was a baby. He's so cute. He's so sweet. And this is like a big thing to have like a, a servant that speaks very well of their um, master owes a lot of respect to them, mm-hmm. to that person because the servants have to deal with you 24 fucking seven. 
the servants know your ass. If the servant says that dude's a fucking bastard, that dude's probably a fucking bastard. <laughs> yeah. Because servants know their shit. They know what's up. Hashtag so, working class. Yes. So the housekeeper is just all about Darcy and Georgiana. She's like, Georgiana is the sweetest girl. Darcy is just a wonderful guy. And Mrs. Gardner is like, man, I don't remember. Like, everyone fucking hated him back in Hertfordshire, right, Lizzie? And Lizzie's like, yeah, yeah I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> And so they're just like walking around and Lizzie's like having a crisis because this could have literally all been mine (laughs) because he wanted to marry me. I literally would have been the mistress of this entire fucking land. Fuck my life. I have no idea how to fucking feel about all of this. They are walking around on the grounds and they turn a fucking corner and Darcy just walks out of the fucking forest by their side out of the fucking blue. And it's clearly a surprise to him and Lizzie. And so her aunt and uncle are like, what the fuck? And Darcy's like, Lizzie. And Lizzie's like, Mr. Mr. Darcy. <laughs> and he's like, uh, how are your family? And she's like, they, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're good. I'm sorry. We didn't think you, they said that you weren't even going to be here until like tomorrow. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah, I I got here early. Um, so so how's your family? Like it's just a very clearly awkward conversation where both of them are very clearly they were not expecting to see each other. And he's like, Cool, okay, goodbye. And he just like leaves. He doesn't introduce himself to his aunt and uncle who are literally standing right there. He just pieces out because he's just like, huh, huh, uh, bye. Wow. And so they walk up and they were like, was, was that Mr. Darcy? And she's like, yeah, yeah, that was him. And they're like, wow, like, he's fucking handsome. She's like, okay, can we go? Let's go. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's time. <laughs> let's fucking leave now. And she's like, come on, we're almost done. Like, let's just finish our tour around the gardens or wherever it is that they're walking. And Lucy's like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's just finish this tour and then let's fucking go. Okay. But as they're finishing their tour, Darcy ran the fuck off to his house just so that he could get his shit together. And now he's walking back and they see him coming back and they're like, hi. (laughs) And he's like, hey, what's up? Like he had to like basically just get his shit together. He comes back and he's like, how are you, Lizzie? And he's very, very nice. Lizzie is just, she has no idea what to think about it. She's like, yeah, everything's good. Like, you know, he's asking her questions. He's not treating her shitty whatsoever. What she was sitting here thinking, he fucking hates me because I was an asshole to him. (laughs) Like when when he proposed, I fucking tore his ass up. There's no way he wants anything to do with me. Yeah. And he is not acting like that at all. And then he's like, can you introduce me to, you know, your your friends? And she's like, yeah, sure. This is my aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner from London. And it's like this funny moment where, because Lizzie, this is one of the relations in particular specifically that Darcy mentioned in his proposal as like a con for their relationship. Like your relations are fucking embarrassing. Basically, she's like, yeah, I absolutely can introduce you to my friends. This is Mr. and Mr. Gardner, my uncle and aunt. And he like blinks and just takes it in stride and is hugely fine with it and is super nice. He's talking up Mr. Gardner, like, you should come and fish in my pond, all this, you know, dude shit. And then they're like, yeah, he's like, yeah, let me walk you guys back to your carriage. I know you guys are leaving right now. So they're like walking along And Mrs. Gardner is like, oh, let me walk with my husband because Mrs. Gardner knows what's up. Let's just talk about this. Mrs. G has seen literally the moment he walked around the corner and like was just 
flabbergasted that he saw Lizzie there. Mrs. G was like, oh, oh, okay. I see what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And she is just 100% on it, like from the get-go. So Mrs. Yeah. G is like, I'm sorry, I, I want to walk with my husband. So that Darcy has to walk with Lizzie as they're walking back to the house. So they're talking and Lizzie's like, I'm super fucking sorry. I had no idea you were going to be here. The housekeeper said that you were not going to be here until tomorrow. I would not have come if I had known that you were here. And he's like, no, no. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, that, that was right. That was true. I, I, I just happened to come here early. <laughs> like I had shit I had to do with my steward and it just so happened that I had to come here a day early before everyone. He's like, actually tomorrow in the morning, the people who are coming that I was going to be coming with are the Bingleys. And she's like, oh, oh, um, okay. How are they? He's like, yeah, yeah, they're good. Um, the other person that's coming is my sister. Do you want to meet her? And she's like, sure. And he's like, awesome. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I- I'd love it if you guys could meet. So, um, uh, we'll see you tomorrow and she's like okay but i was leaving like (laughs) i got shit to do and this is well so like he learns like where they're staying essentially so they're staying at an inn in like the town that's over that is still within his like fucking estate essentially that's where they're staying is an inn in his fucking realm basically yeah so he lets them off into the carriage and they go and Mrs. Gardner is just like, she's asking very pointed questions at Lizzie. Like he was very nice, such different, yeah. but much handsome. Yeah. Gee, I wonder why he was acting so strange earlier. And she's just like hawk-eyed on Lizzie and Lizzie's like, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That was fucking weird. And so like Mrs. G is very clearly like, okay, well, Lizzie's clearly not going to say anything, so she's not going to push her niece, is what she decides. But it's very obvious that Mrs. G is like, I fucking smell what's happening right now. I'm not an idiot. I was not bored yesterday. Something the fuck is up. So the next morning, they were like, okay, he said that he wanted us to come visit, so let's get ready. But he doesn't even have that much chill. He comes with his sister in the morning to visit them. And they're like, Oh, oh. eager. Yes. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, hi. <laughs> so she meets his sister. His sister is super cute. She's very shy. She's just very clearly like all of the shy bits of Darcy got shoved into one body. <laughs> I mean, I'd be uh, so shy she- too if the last adult I met was a fucking rapist who promised yeah. me we were going to get married so that we so- could have sex. Like, fuck that guy. <laughs> Yeah. So she's very sweet, but she's very, very awkward. So Lizzie, you know, she really likes her and is trying to talk to her. And Darcy's like, oh yeah, by the way, Bingley is probably on his way too. And like, right when he says that Bingley shows up, his sisters do not show up, but Bingley does. Yay! And Bingley is like, Lizzie! They basically like have a bro moment, like like where where Mr. Bingley is like, bro! And Lizzie's like, bro and he's like oh my god like i'm so excited to see you he's like oh my god i haven't seen you so long and he's like yeah it's been a long time and he's like yeah but a really long time yeah it has been it's been like 87 days five hours and like 13 minutes (laughs) like bingley like gives a very clear response that makes it immediately known that bingley has just been sitting thinking about jane probably yeah the whole time higher time where he's just been like (laughs) 
Yeah. So they're talking. He doesn't ever explicitly ask about Jane, but Lizzie can tell that he wants to, but he like holds himself back from doing so. So they're like, we should see each other again. Like you should come to dinner at, you know, Pemberley tomorrow or something random like that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they do because they invited them. They were like, yeah, come to dinner tonight. Fucking chill at the house. So they go. They have to see Caroline here, obviously, because Caroline's there. And Caroline is just extra AF. She's super not fucking happy. Lizzie's there. She has negative five million chill about the fact that Lizzie is here. And it's very obvious that not only does Darcy still fucking love her, but Lizzie is now kind of aware of that and is like talking to his sister. And Caroline can see that. And she acts like almost towing the line of socially acceptable for this time to the point that it almost provokes Darcy to say something several times. But Lizzie kind of handles herself. And afterwards, Caroline lets loose very, very openly and badly. And Darcy restrains himself and is only finally provoked at the very end because Caroline is trying to tear her down, basically saying, oh, you know, she's basically the ugliest creature ever. But I remember once you thought she was pretty. And he's like, yeah, that was actually only when I had first met her that I thought she was pretty. Now I actually think she's literally the most beautiful fucking woman I've ever met and walks out, basically. Yeah, mic drop, bitch. Get the fuck out of my face. Yes. So the next morning, Lizzie receives two letters from her sister. And she's like, fuck, finally, I've been waiting for Jane to write me. It's weird. She notices that the first letter was mismarked. And it was mismarked. That's probably why it took so long to get there. And it's postmarked wrong because Jane's writing on it is super fucking sloppy. So it was probably hard to make out where it was supposed to go, which is weird. Jane is very neat. So Lizzie is already like, what the fuck? She opens the letters, and in these two letters, we learn something really unfortunate. We learn that while Lydia, the youngest Bennett sister, was at Brighton, she eventually, uh, several nights ago, left and eloped with Mr. Wickham. They don't know where they are. She has no money. Wickham has no money. Mr. B, all of their neighbors, um, the colonel and Lydia's friend who she was staying with are all trying to figure out where the fuck they went, and they have not been able to find her yet. And Jane is basically telling her, like, you have to get home. Like, right now, we have a fucking problem. And Lizzie is just beside herself. Yeah. So she, like, runs out. Her aunt and uncle just left because they were about to go to church or something when Lizzie gets the letters. And she was like, oh, you guys go. Like, I'll I'll meet you guys there after I read the letters, basically, is what happened. So they just left. So now Lizzie is, like, trying to run out because she's like, I need to tell my uncle. But she's actually literally almost at this point in hysterics. So she, like, runs into, like, the open parlor or whatever, just as Mr. Darcy is being let into the parlor because he came to visit her. Mm-hmm. And he is like, Jesus, like, what What's the fuck? Wrong? What, the, what yeah. is the matter? And she's like, I need my uncle. I need you to go get my uncle. So he sends a servant and he is just like, you can very clearly what see. What can I do? He, like, yes. Yeah. He is very much like, should I go get you some wine? Should I go get you some water? Like, huh? And yeah, she he's starts, panicking. Yes. And she's, she bursts into tears, which just, Makes him panic more, and he's yeah. just sitting there like... Because it's super uncharacteristic of her. <laughs> yes, yes. And she finally tells him what yeah. happened in the letter. And he has nearly the same reaction. I mean, he doesn't go into hysterics, but it affects him very deeply, clearly. And she is basically just browbeating herself in this moment because she's talking about how she didn't tell 
her sisters anything about Wickham before Lydia went off. She knew Wickham was going to be there. She knew everything about Wickham by that point before Lydia left, but she didn't say anything. And she could have prevented this. And this is her fault, basically. Darcy has been very quiet this whole time. And finally, after a while, he goes, you probably don't want me here. This is really personal. Um, I, I'm going to leave. I'm really sorry. And he leaves. And Lizzie is like, of course he does, because now he absolutely would never be able to marry me. Like this just absolutely solidifies it. My family is ruined. To match himself with my family now is absolutely social suicide. So there's this dual devastation here that Lizzie feels because on the one hand, she's devastated for her sister, for her family, and she's very guilty, not just about that, but she's guilty about the fact that she is also very devastated that this just ruined her ability to potentially ever be happy with Darcy if he could ever forgive her because now there's just no hope yeah so she goes home because her uncle comes back she tells them and they go home and they're like maybe they'll find them maybe they went off to marry maybe they're already married like let's look on the fucking bright side maybe they have not been living with each other in sin this whole time essentially so she goes home they're trying to find her after they drop Lizzie back off at the house with Mrs. Gardner um, Mr. Gardner goes back into London where Mr. B already is trying to find them. And when he goes there, they send Mr. B home because Mr. B at this point is exhausted. He's been searching for almost a week now by himself. So he comes home and Mr. G is there. And now they're just sitting around waiting for information about what's going on. They finally get a letter from Mr. G and he says, we found Wickham and Lydia. They are not married. However, they will be immediately upon my receipt of you, my brother, Mr. Bennett, agreeing to the dowry information that I enclose in this letter, basically. These are the terms of the marriage for Mr. Wickham. Please write to me back accepting this and literally the marriage will be done within that same day, basically. It is a very, very cheap agreement. It is so cheap that Mr. Bennett and Lizzie, once he tells his daughter this, instantly know that it's only this cheap because Mr. Gardner is probably fronting up a lot more money for it because otherwise he wouldn't be able to respectably afford any sort of even normal low-class marriage. Wickham is a fool to accept the terms that he gives Mr. Bennett unless he got more money from somewhere else especially because they learn that he is indebted he has a bunch of gambling debts that they are now paying off as part of the agreement i don't understand how you can request a dowry from an elopement that does not make sense to me like if it just yeah like a dowry makes sense kind of in a sense that you want your daughter to you know go up social classes and rise above her family's station i guess So like Mr. Darcy or the other guy, Bingley, asking for a dowry makes sense. I'm a higher class to marry your lower class daughter. I need a little incentive. Sure, why not? But if a dude came up to one of the other daughters and was like, yeah, let's fucking go and get married, elope. That means like, bye, I don't give a fuck. We out. We're going to get married. Why the fuck is he asking for a dowry? Like that's not... Those two things are not things that make sense together. Yeah. Um, so eloping back then wouldn't have been like, we call it eloping now if they skip off to get married without telling anyone. Eloping back then would have been, you don't know if we're married or not, but we're together now and you're not allowed to live together unless you're married. Oh, got it. Wedlock. And that's what they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's essentially more of the fuck the patriarchy thing. Anyway, essentially, they're just like, okay, well, fuck, now we are indebted to our uncle literally for the rest of our lives for saving this, basically. Because doing this saves them. Everyone will know that it's patched up marriage, like it was a situation that could have been a disaster and it thankfully wasn't. And that will ding their reputation a little bit, but it's absolutely salvageable from them just eloping. It's totally fine at that point. So they are indebted to what they believe to be their uncle for literally the rest of their lives. And so they get married. They get word from their uncle that they get married. And Lydia comes to the house because now they are going to have to move because Wickham is no longer going to be in Brighton where he was. Now he's getting transferred up to the north. So she's going to be farther away, like super far away. She's like, I just want to see you guys before I, before you move. Because otherwise, Mr. Bennett was not going to let them come to the house because he's pissed, basically. Yeah. So they come and Wickham and Lydia are there and Lydia is just absolutely, she has no fucking remorse. It's just almost intolerable how absolutely uncaring she is about literally anything to do with like what she's done to her family. And Wickham is very charming like he always is, but he can tell that Lizzie is like very upset. Lizzie. Yeah, Lizzie-ing. So while Lydia is there visiting before they leave, Lydia insists on telling everyone about the wedding, even though nobody wants to fucking hear about it because everyone is pissed off at Lydia. Um, <laughs> so Lydia is talking about it. And at one point she mentions Mr. Darcy. And the minute the words Mr. Darcy come out of Lydia's mouth, Lizzie's like, I'm sorry, what? What did you just say? Mr. Darcy, Mr. Darcy was at your wedding. What? What? Hmm? And Lydia's like, oh shit, I wasn't supposed to tell you. Sorry, I forgot I said anything. And this is just not to be born. <laughs> um, so Lizzie is like, absolutely not. But Lydia won't say anything. So she writes her aunt and is basically like, tell me the fuck now so that I don't have to do nasty things in order to figure out the truth. Because I will find out the truth, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and her aunt writes her back and basically says, I'm surprised you don't know about this already. But okay, sorry, no matter. Yeah, after we arrived in London to relieve your father... Mr. Darcy visited us and he told us immediately that he had already found Wickham and Lydia and that he is going to pay for everything and take care of the arrangements for getting them married and stuff. Because according to him, it's his fault that nobody knows about the kind of man that Wickham is and that he insists on paying for everything. And so, yeah, we spent a, a couple of days trying to argue with Darcy because, you know, your uncle didn't think that it was okay for him to pay for all of it. But Darcy is, as you know, very stubborn and he insisted. So yeah, he's the one that found Wickham and Lydia and he convinced Wickham to marry her, and he paid for literally everything, and was at the wedding to ensure that it happened, and then he left. He convinced Wickham to marry her? Why? They didn't, they didn't have any intention of marrying. They just were going to sleep around together? Mm-hmm. And not get married? Mm-hmm. So Darcy made it so that it was acceptable? Yep. Got it. Because mm-hmm. to me, it just sounds <coughs> like Darcy was a fuck-up, because if that was happening today... Nobody gives a fuck if you're sleeping around, but if you forced your hand no. or forced someone else to get married to someone else, like, that's some fucked yeah, up shit. Yeah, no. He, he found them, and he was like, so when are you guys getting married? And Wickham and Lydia were both like, mm, we're not. And Darcy's like, you're not hearing me, children. When are you fucking getting married? 
because I'm making you guys get married right the fuck now, basically. And he makes it happen. And Lizzie now is just like, Jesus Christ, this dude has saved my entire family. Yeah. And Mr. Gardner was like, you know, well, I have to tell my family then that you've done this. And Darcy was like, absolutely not. Don't, Don't fucking tell anyone. You please take the credit. That is my actual condition for it. I will pay for everything. And my condition is you take the credit for it. I don't need anyone to know about this. And so Lizzie is just like, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation points are just scrolling endlessly in her head, basically. So the other thing that Mrs. G does in this letter is basically she drops a bunch of hints the entire time that like, Darcy obviously is doing this because he's fucking in love with you, Elizabeth. (laughs) Like, he would not give a single shit about our family if he was not head over fucking heels for you. But absolutely not. That's not actually at all why he did that, because I don't know about that. What? What are you talking about? I didn't even say anything. Anyway, when you live at Pemberley, you know, let me visit you, dear. Bye. (laughs) It's basically like Mrs. G's entire attitude, and it's just amazing. So after this happens, Lydia and Wickham leave, and almost like the very next day, they hear that suddenly Charles Bingley is back at his estate in our tiny little neighborhood. Yeah. And not only is he back, but he's back to stick around for a little bit. And not only is he back and is going to stick around for a little bit, but that single day that they realize this, he shows up at Longbourn to visit the Bennets with Mr. Darcy. And Bingley is now here and like Mrs. Bennett is just beside herself happy that he's back, but she's also very rude to Darcy because it's Mrs. Bennett, so it's embarrassing, but also good, because Lizzie is like, oh shit, because now Jane is like, oh shit, Um, (laughs) and they hang out for a little while, and afterwards, Lizzie is like, okay, and Jane is like, lock that shit down, like, I am a respectable woman, there's nothing, I I don't feel anything now, I'm totally over him, so, like, everything's fine, like, we're gonna be great friends, and Lizzie's like, okay, Jane, sure, absolutely. (laughs) so they like hang out a couple more times and then darcy goes away and bingley comes and visits by himself bingley says oh he's gone for like like 10 days or something he has business to do but then he's coming back and they're like okay in this time bingley proposes to jane and it is wonderful happiness abounds everyone is ecstatic and jane is just over the moon and so is lizzie after this proposal happens, uh, like the next day or the next couple days, they suddenly get a very surprising visitor at their house. And this visitor is Lady Catherine de Burgh. Lady Catherine de Burgh comes in in all her ladyship, stateliness, and is like, this is a really shitty poor house. Elizabeth Bennet, I'm going to go take a walk and you're going to walk with me. Okay, bye. And everyone is like, oh, okay. <laughs> because you don't refuse a lady, what she says. Yeah. So... Elizabeth walks out onto the grounds with Lady Catherine de Bourgh and they like walk off into like a section of their estate and then Lady Catherine de Bourgh turns to her and says I'm sure you know why I'm here so like let's not mince words here and Lizzie's like I have no fucking idea why you're here but okay yeah sure let's not mince words and Lady Catherine de Bourgh is like don't play coy with me bitch you know why I'm here no I really don't and she's like I don't, I really don't. I really don't know why you're here. I really sorry, don't. Lady Nobody Catherine talks DeBerg. to me, okay? Please, I don't, please tell me. <laughs> I don't hear shit till like three days later. Yes. Okay? Nobody tells me shit. Lady Catherine de Berg is like, 
Well, I'm here because I heard the other day that you are going to marry my fucking nephew, Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy. And Lizzie's like, news to me, okay. bitch. Okay. <laughs> news and she's to like, me. She's like, like what are you obviously, talking about? Obviously, this isn't true, but I came over here immediately when I heard it to make fucking sure. And Lizzie is like, doesn't it kind of look more like it's true if you came over here <laughs> to visit me about it? Right. And Lady is like, don't, don't, don't get fucking clever with me, bitch. <laughs> and is just like, I'm here to make sure that you are not engaged to my fucking nephew. So are you? And Lizzie is like, you've already said that it's impossible. So how am I engaged? <laughs> right. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh is just, she has never been talked to like this in her life. She is yeah. a lady. And Elizabeth is not giving her the immediate answer that she clearly wants. And this is absolutely unacceptable to Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And it's just like, you are a wretch on humanity and you have Ooh. no fucking regard for decency, for my son's honor. And, you know, he is to be engaged to my daughter. How do you think about that? And Lizzie's like, I think that if he's engaged to your daughter, then he has no business proposing to me. So then why are we here? Right. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh says, well, well, it's not, I mean, it's not official, but it's been clearly what the plan has been since they were, since they were born. It was the clear wishes of his mother and me. And yeah, so that's just been the plan. So they're clearly practically engaged. And Lizzie's like, I don't, I give literally a single shit about this conversation. This has nothing to do with me. And Lady Catherine de Berg is like, well, I have a right to know everything that is happening for my nephew. And Lizzie is like, absolutely. But you don't have a right to know anything about my business because I have no fucking dealings with you. You have no connections with me. And by the way, you coming here and yelling at me like this isn't going to make me suddenly want to tell you anything about my life. Right. <laughs> so... I'm not telling you shit. And essentially, Lady Catherine de Bourgh insists very plainly and so many times to where finally Lizzie goes, no, I'm not. I'm not fucking engaged to him. Are you happy? And Lady Catherine de Bourgh is like, no. Can you promise me that you're never going to accept a proposal? And she's like, I absolutely will never promise something like that because that decision is not up to you. Good for you, girl. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh is like just beside herself at this response. Yeah. And Lizzie's like, anyway, you can leave now because you have insulted me. The quote is, you've insulted me in every possible way imaginable and can now have nothing further to say. So I must ask you to leave is the quote. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh is very upset about this. She gets in her carriage and says, I do not take leave of you. I do not wish your family well because they do not deserve my attention and neither do you. And I am very displeased. And she leaves. Bye, bitch. <laughs> and at this point, Lizzie is like having an out-of-body experience. Like yeah. the way that Jane Austen is describing it is that Lizzie is just rolling with the punches at this point because she has no mental capacity to be able to understand what is even happening in her life at this point. Yeah. She walks in. And immediately after she walks into the house, her dad is like, Lizzie, come here. Come here. I have something I want to tell you. And she's like, okay. She goes in. He's like, I got a letter from Mr. Collins today. It's fucking hilarious. I just have to read it to you because you're going to laugh. And Lizzie's like, okay, cool. What, what is it? And he's like, Mr. Coll Mr. Collins is insinuating in this letter that like you are going to become Mrs. Darcy soon. <laughs> that like Darcy 
has proposed to you and like you guys can get married (laughs) and the quote is literally that lizzie laughs because otherwise she would cry (laughs) yeah she's just like it's absolute insanity in her brain at this point basically everyone knows that he's gonna propose to her the entire world is exploding fucking ruining (laughs) in her face whatever surprise would have been her proposal and did you hear that he's gonna propose to you nah bitch (laughs) shut the fuck up we haven't gotten there yet damn and so, like, <laughs> her dad is like, you don't seem like you're, you're not as, like, tickled by this as I thought you would be. Like, are you okay? Are you feeling sick or whatever? She's like, oh, no, no, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, I have to go. <laughs> Just, like, goes back to her room and, like, hides, basically, for, like, the next day. And the next day, Bingley and Darcy show up because Darcy is now obviously back in town. And immediately Bingley is like, I want to go take a walk. Let's go take a walk, guys. Everybody want to go take a walk? Let's fucking go. All right. No, 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 no. You guys leave leave Darcy and Lizzie over there. Like, let's go. Let's go this way. Nice. <laughs> and so Bingley's Darcy, in on the plan. Yes. <laughs> so Darcy and Lizzie are walking. And at first, it, it really, at this point, it's been silent for a long time because both of our protagonists are idiotic and socially inept and mm. are just like, they can't think of anything to say to each other. So Lizzie finally says that she knows that she's not supposed to know about it, but she can't not thank him for what he did for Lydia and for her family. Yeah. Uh, and she expresses it, you know, very humbly. And Darcy says, well, don't thank me for anything like that. If you're going to thank me, thank yourself because I did literally all of it for you. So, um, and she has, no, she has no idea how to respond to this. And he basically finally just kind of takes a deep breath and he's like, okay, like y- you don't fuck around. You won't fuck around with me. I know this. So um, I just need you to tell me right now if your feelings are the same from the last time we had this conversation because my feelings haven't changed. So if your feelings are the same as the last time we talked about this, then um, we'll never speak about it again. I promise. But if they've changed, uh, basically is what he says after that. And Lizzie tells him that they have absolutely changed. And in fact, they are quite the opposite of what they once were. Um, And it is a very, very sweet exchange where they essentially go back through their relationship and talk about all of the like fuck ups that they had. And that like they talk about the proposal and how what she said to him changed his entire life and that he would not be the same man without her having said the things that she said to him in the proposal because she is just like don't like when they start talking about it he brings it up or something she's like don't remind me i'm already super embarrassed like i'm i will be embarrassed for the rest of my life about the shit that i said to you in that proposal and he's like no you shouldn't be like you didn't say anything that wasn't fucking true like i was i was a fucking asshole and like i went through that entire proposal, you know, insulting you left and right. And I was just sitting there like, anyway, so you're going to marry me, right? Like, I was a fucking idiot. Like, you didn't say anything to me that wasn't true. And it took me, you know, admittedly, it took me a couple days because it was hard for me when you said that. But, you know, I'm, I'm a 
reasonable man and that was a reasonable response and i realized that if i actually ever wanted to be happy with you which i didn't know if i was ever going to be able to get a chance again that i had to actually take what you said to heart and i had to figure out how to change basically and it's a very clearly like communicative conversation between a couple that very obviously considers each other equals yeah. They have equal regard for each other's opinion in situations. And it's cute because he, you know, they go through the little moments that you read as a reader thinking, what are they thinking when they said this? What are they thinking when they said that? And now they're revealing to each other what they were thinking when those things were happening. Jane Austen gives the reader a little bit of a satisfying ending on that note. So essentially he goes in like the next night or something like that. They don't, they just go back in but they, and they don't do anything about it until the next day. And the next night he asks Mr. Um, Bennett for Lizzie's hand and Mr. Bennett calls Lizzie in and he's like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, you're gonna marry him? Like, you hate him. And she's like, I don't. And he's like, I mean, he's like, Lizzie, I understand he's, you know, rich and shit like that. Like, I get it. And I'm obviously not going to refuse because, like, he's rich and shit like that. You don't refuse that dude. But he's like, you're my favorite daughter, which you kind of have learned at this point in the novel that she's his favorite daughter. And he's like, I can accept some of my other daughters marrying if they don't love their husband, if they're still happy with the match. He's like, but I really cannot accept you marrying someone unless you're in love with them. And she's like, is that your only issue? And he's like, yeah, no, there's no other issue. I don't care if everyone in the neighborhood hates him still and your mom hates him still. I don't fucking care. If you love him, that's, that's it. He's like, but you hate him. And she's like, no, I don't. I love him. I thought I hated him and I was wrong, basically. And so like she and her dad have a really cute moment. And the ending of this story gives Jane and Mr. Bingley and Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy a double wedding. Nice. They get married simultaneously and live literally happily ever after. And that is the end of Pride and Prejudice. Nice. Do they live at the big estate at Pemberley? Yes, Pemberley. Mm -hmm. Pemberley. Darcy and, yes. Where do the Bingleys end up? They hang out in their Hertfordshire house, the neighborhood where the Bennets grew up. But they eventually reside permanently in his permanent residence, which is also in London, which is close to where Pemberley is. Basically, Derbyshire is close to London. Is there ever an explanation what happens to the fourth and fifth daughters? Kitty was kind of Lydia's lackey. So for a while, like, everyone was worried that Kitty was going to be just as bad as Lydia. But once Lydia is removed from the picture, Kitty gets kind of better and just kind of becomes you know, normal girl. And Mary, the middle child, which I have neglected to talk about, or which is so sad because Mary is such a funny, relatable character. Mary is a character that absolutely is not here for boys and is not here for dancing and is not here for anyone and anything except for knowledge and playing the piano. (laughs) Nice. Basically, Mary doesn't give a single shit. About dancing, about social things. She doesn't care about having friends. She just wants to hang out and like read books and play the piano. And she's not good at the piano, nor is she good at singing. And like, there's some stuff that happens with that in the book, but like, she just doesn't, she doesn't want anything to do with that life. 
uh, especially when she sees like all of the like stress that happens with her other sisters regarding their involvement with trying to figure out how to get married mary is literally like at one point she says something that lizzie finds very striking where she's just basically like well this clearly says that like women should just say fuck off to all men (laughs) basically yeah like we should just you know shove them all into a basement and just not deal with them (laughs) essentially is what mary says and lizzie is just like she on the one hand is very much like oh mary but on the other hand is like yeah i mean yeah you're 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 also kind of right yeah what happens with the Bennett house estate? They, I mean, the Bennetts live for a while. Uh, eventually, once the Bennetts die, then Mr. and Mrs. Collins would move in, but they're not dead by the end of the story, so. Oh, know. okay. I wasn't sure what happens, like, in regards yeah, to no, the estate, because all the parents Austin, or half the girls ended up married and... yeah. Yeah, no, uh, and Jane Austen does absolutely tie up loose ends a lot of the time. She does tell you that type of information at the end of her stories often, but she just didn't this time. Or she did, but just on certain stuff. Like, the rest of this stuff, she really didn't care, essentially, to talk about. So this novel, when it was released, which was, remember, in 1813, it was very well received by society. There were, in particular, three favorable reviews in the first months following the publication from three very reputable literature reviewers, essentially. One of them being the eventual wife of Lord Byron. She calls it a fashionable novel, which is very nice. The noted critic and reviewer George Henry Lewis actually declares that he would rather have written Pride and Prejudice than any of the other sort of novels that were kind of high and popular at that time, which is a very high praise. Interestingly enough, Charlotte Bronte, who is another woman writer of this time, writes to Lewis about his review of Pride and Prejudice and disagrees with him on it. She says Pride and Prejudice was a disappointment, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no open country, no fresh air, no Blue Hill, no Bonnie Beck. So Charlotte Bronte was a, very obviously a jealous bitch yeah. um, about it. And Austin, about her own novel, thinks that the playfulness and the like wit, the like one-liners essentially of Pride and Prejudice are very excessive. <laughs> and that she complains to Cassandra that the novel lacks shade and should have had a chapter of solemn, specious nonsense. Something unconnected with the story. Maybe an essay on writing or a critique of Sir Walter Scott or the history of Bonaparte. Wow. <laughs> and that was her opinion of Pride and Prejudice. And that is my critique of Pride and Prejudice. Question. Are a lot of Jane Austen's characters like the same or are her stories very similar to each other? Because I, I haven't watched or read any versions of Little Women, but I did watch the like five minute long extended trailer for that uh, Little Women that came out last year, the one with Emma Watson. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the characters, a lot of the sisters from Pride and Prejudice sound very similar to the sisters from Little Women. Like there was one who had a boy, but didn't really want the boy, was kind of like 
torn dicking him around the whole time like couldn't yeah, decide yeah. if will they or won't they there was one who was just like now nah, fuck boys like i just want to read and be smart and yeah. do this like yeah i know little women i yeah like are there are the characters in her stories pretty much all this does she have just like here's one well here's i mean girl, little women is not an girl. austin novel so there's that oh but okay, um well. <laughs> there you go <laughs> But um, having said that, they lots seem of very people, similar. Yeah, and they're they're very similar for a variety of reasons. But one of which is that like there wasn't a whole lot of story to tell for young women that were not of high society, other than those types of stories. Because yeah. if you're of high society, you have a bunch of experiences, and there's lots of things to talk about. But if you are of low society, but if you are not high society, your story, at least 50% of your story is about, okay, but where are you going to end up? Because if you don't end up with a man, you're kind of fucked in life. Yeah. And that's what a lot of the like middle slash lower class popular stories focused on because that was what their lives all were. And they wanted to read stories about women defying those odds and the intricate, realistic workings and the ins and outs of those types of relationships. Who wrote Little Women? Louisa May Alcott. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Little Women. Thank you for everyone who has stuck around this long <laughs> through Pride and Prejudice. That was a lot. It was rough. Uh, but now for something that I don't know if it can be more opposite of Pride and Prejudice. Love and it. I, and I know Sam's going to love this because she is going to love it. So I've been keeping it a secret from her for a long time now. Oh my God. And this is the movie that we're going to be doing. What the fuck? Can you read oh it? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> What? Okay, so for everyone who's clearly not watching our Zoom meeting right now because we're not posting that, I'm going to discuss Meet the Deedles. Okay. <laughs> Sam's face My brain has now. like short circuited. <laughs> Sam's face right now. I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> I'm so ready for this right now. So for anyone who has not seen the movie Meet the Deedles, and I'm betting it's a lot of you, because when I bring this movie up to any of my friends, most of them are like, the fuck is that? <laughs> Meet the Deedles is a live action Disney movie that came out in 1998. It stars Stephen J. Wormer, who, if you follow Disney films, you would recognize from Johnny Tsunami. He was, he played both of the brothers that owned the mountain from Johnny Tsunami and the infamous now Paul Walker as a young early 20s. Oh my God. I can't believe we're guy. talking about Meet the Deedles right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm so freaking excited. Yeah. So Paul Walker and Stephen J. Wormer, if you don't know who Paul Walker is, where have you been? He's from Fast and the Furious. Listen, He's yes. the like the main white guy in Fast and the Furious. Not Vin Diesel, the other guy. Yeah, he has (laughs) since uh, passed away. Yes, R.I.P. Paul Walker. It's incredibly sad. But if you would like to see a young Paul Walker who spends a lot of this movie with his shirt off, you should check out Meet the Beatles, which is part of the appeal to young Sam and Katie via 1998. Like, that's what we were looking at for most of this movie. Literally, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Well, not little kids, but teens, queens, really. Yeah, I was just saying, oh my God, he's so hot. So I was just realizing, like, guys could be attractive and, like, that was was thing that I could enjoy. I was (laughs) 10. So I was like, I was right there at the, oh yeah, that's a hot guy. 
Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it stars Paul Walker and Stephen J. Wormer. They are brothers from Hawaii and they are your classic beach bum. When you think of any like shitty beach dude from California, quote unquote, like right. they the stereotype. The, they, yeah, they fit the stereotype 100%. They're slackers. They miss school all the time because they would rather be surfing and they just suck. And basically, and they're kids, they're still in high school and they just love to surf. That's the end. They speak surfer slang. They do all of that. Their language is like, insane to themselves like if you just listen to what they're saying peak peak 90s cali slang yes peak (laughs) yeah yeah there's a lot all of it there's a lot like it's basically like you asked someone from the east coast to describe how surfers talk on the west coast yes and that's who wrote the script of this movie like it's not how anyone actually talks but you know movie people i guess Anyways, (laughs) so this film opens up and it's the Deedles twins' 18th birthday. So their friends roll up on their house and they basically kidnap them for a day at the beach because their 18th birthday, like, yeah, let's go fucking party. We live in Hawaii. Why the fuck not? Like, why would I go to school, right? Absolutely. So they go to the beach and they're windsurfing and then... Lo and behold, in Hawaii, apparently, I had didn't look this up, but in the movie, they have truancy patrol on the beach, like on a ski-doo oh, right. at the beach. And he pulls them over and they get in trouble for skipping school. And their dad, who is like this rich hotel mogul, yes. has had enough. He's like, nah, you guys need to fucking learn to grow up. If you want to take over my hotel business in the future, I'm going to need you guys to be adults, not just like surfer bums. Right. So he sends them to a camp, like a semi-military camp, like a militaristic reform camp called yeah. Broken Spirit in Wyoming. Oh. oh, wow. To force them to reform and grow up, basically get the fuck with the program or yeah. lose everything that you've ever wanted, basically. The guy who runs the camp picks them up and they find out on their way to the camp that Camp Broken Spirit does not exist anymore. And the guy is just going to train them like survival skills because their camp doesn't exist because he got sued too many times by all the other parents because he was too hard on the kids. (laughs) Wonderful. He's like, I'm just living up to the brand. Like you call us Broken Spirit. What were you expecting? Yeah. So as they're on their way to the camp, the guy gets like way too into his speech about how the camp is broken down and all this shit. And he doesn't notice that a turn is coming up and they're up in the mountains. So they take a tumble off a cliff and this really long car crash sequence happens where they're like flying through the air and they're tumbling down the hill and they hit a campsite of Mo and Mel, these two female like wilderness people. And eventually the truck like crashes into like a big rock or something. And the guy like passes out or gets flung through the window or something. He disappears for a bit, not to be seen again until the end of the movie. And the Deedles like get out and make their way back to the street. They pick up the clothes they had found from the campground for Mel and Mo. They're like women's clothes they put on because what the fuck else are they going to wear? Okay, 
every moment of you speaking flashbacks of this movie are (laughs) surfacing in my brain that have not been examined in quite a long time and I'm just like how did I forget about this how (laughs) how have I not watched this movie religiously every day of my life since I was eight years old okay sorry I just needed to interject (laughs) it's okay so they get in the girls' clothes because that's what they have. Yeah, for warm weather clothes because Wyoming is significantly colder than Hawaii. <laughs> and they make it back up to the street and they have this big trunk thing that carries all their junk in it. So they've got their cool motorized skateboards in there and they've got like, that's they right, have a, it has a drink counter. Skateboards. It's got I like forgot. a drink counter in it so they can make their uh, hula, hula luau things. Yes! And... <laughs> Fucking oh my mess. god i love but, this movie so, so they much get up, they get all the way up back to the road and they get on their scooters or on their um motorized skateboards and they skate through the fucking mountains in wyoming on the roads and end up at yellowstone national park okay <laughs> this is the, the this movie meet the deedles is the only reason that i learned anything about Yellowstone National Park and never forgot about it because of this movie. Like, I don't remember a lot of shit that I was learning in elementary school, but I knew everything about Yellowstone National Park when I was a kid because of this freaking Yeah, because we watched it all the time. All the time. Okay, so they end up at Yellowstone and they crash into the sign right at the front and they pass the fuck out because they crash hard. And the camp rangers, like, come upon them to take them to medical bay and they notice that their clothes on the inside say mel and mo well the women mel and mo were supposed to be the new ranger recruits so the boys get mistaken for the new ranger recruits mel and mo and since mel and mo are not really male or female names right there they are androgynous yes (laughs) (laughs) so we find out after the boys wake up in the hospital wing of Yellowstone that Mel and Mo, the women, were set up to be the rangers there so that they could help eradicate a huge prairie dog problem that is plaguing the park, basically. (laughs) And the chief ranger is trying to make sure that the prairie dogs don't interfere with Old Faithful's one billionth birthday. So now we have the Deedles, who are shitty high school garbage surfers, trying to get rid of pee dogs in the middle of Wyoming. (laughs) And they have no knowledge about prairie dogs, no knowledge about the wilderness, and all these things. So basically, chaos ensues for the next hour of the movie. Uh, Mel and Mo are supposed to be naturalists and survivors. So on their resume to work at Yellowstone, they said that they don't eat dairy or meat or any of that like they gather their own like bugs and leaves and shit and eat it that's right yes i remember this part now too yes yeah and (laughs) they don't want a cabin or anything they'll just camp on the outside so the deedles don't get a cabin they don't get to eat regular (laughs) food so the boys are basically starving because they don't actually eat bugs and shit right (laughs) so every time they get a chance to go into town and like scavenge They do. Eventually, they end up working the gate at Yellowstone and end up confiscating a whole bunch of food from random people coming into the park being like, 
oh, we don't yes. allow birthday cakes because that might start a fire. And we don't allow Twinkies because bears might eat them or some a bullshit. Hu- a huge memory of Paul Walker's voice going, I'm going to have to confiscate this. <laughs> Just yeah. flash through my brain over and over again. Yes. Oh, my God. I love Paul Walker. I love this movie so much. I'm going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> So the boys get to work trying to figure out a solution to the prairie dog problem. And they make friends, quote unquote, make friends with a prairie dog, a pea dog, so they call them, named Petey the pea dog. Paul Walker ends up feeding him a red vine and now he keeps coming back to them. So Petey the pea dog helps map out where the prairie dog tunnels are. Stu Deedle, played by not Paul Walker, is the smart one of the group. (laughs) He's like the nerdy kid who just didn't try in school. I don't know what his deal was. He was actually incredibly smart. He just wasn't interested in anything else. Yeah, Yeah. he just didn't give a fuck about anything except surfing. So (laughs) he comes up with this idea to buy toothpaste, like this special kind of toothpaste, and attach it to the prairie dogs. And as they run through the tunnels, the toothpaste will leave like a trail in the tunnels and will show up from the satellite heat image, basically. So they could map out where all the prairie dog tunnels were so they could get rid of them. He does some research on the internet and he comes up with this plan called Gastro Castro. It's Which a mess. Is just so inappropriate for well, a variety of reasons. Well, so, <laughs> suppose, according to the movie, according to Stu in the movie, it was a Cuban plan to get rid of Fidel Castro mm-hmm. that never got used because it was too dangerous for humans. Like it would. <laughs> so basically, They bought a bunch of stuff from the regular store and mixed it all together and then sent the prairie dogs through the tunnels with it on them. But eventually the tunnels got too much for the prairie dogs. So they all came out of the tunnels and started running around Yellowstone. Now the gas from Gastro Castro is basically a human laxative and everybody who smells it just starts shitting their pants. (laughs) So these prairie dogs like run through a campground and everyone is holding their butts trying not to shit on each other because (laughs) it's horrible. (laughs) Don't you just love this movie? I love this movie so much. I'm so excited and happy that we are doing this podcast right now in this moment. I don't think I've ever been happier. Yeah. Okay, so Operation Gastro Castro is a failure, and <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm here. It's fine. It's a failure, <laughs> just like you think it should be, based on the description that I already gave. Okay. Yes. Because they messed up, they're on thin ice already. Not to mention the fact that Paul Walker has the hots for his training officer Jesse, who is also the leader of all the Rangers' daughter. So, Paul Walker's already on thin ice because he has the hots for the general's daughter, basically. And now they're on even more thin ice because they haven't been able to take care of the prairie dog problem. Then, Mel and Mo show up. And you're like, the fuck? (laughs) Oops. And they find (laughs) out that the boys were mistaken identity, basically. But rather than saying what they had planned on saying, like, we were in a coma or we completely forgot amnesia, whatever, they just freeze up and they're like, oh shit, we gotta go. And they end up leaving. They feel bad about everything because they really were starting to like everybody and enjoying their jobs. So they follow up on the prairie dog problem 
Meanwhile, Old Faithful is completely fucked up. When Gastro Castro did not work out, it fucked up Old Faithful, and now Old oh, Faithful right. does not fucking erupt anymore. That's right. Yeah. I forgot what it was that started the geyser issue. So to recap, Old Faithful doesn't work. The boys were mistaken and pretending to be these park ranger people that they were not. The prairie There's a dog bunch problem of prairie is dogs not are running around that is still apparently have toxic yes, shit, everyone shit is beginning their pants. chemicals around them. And the person who is above the superintendent of Yellowstone, I felt like superintendent was the wrong word to use there, but that's what they used in the movie. He's like yeah. the head leader guy above guy. the captain guy in charge of Yellowstone. And he's basically out for blood. Like, if this old faithful party does not go out without a hitch, like, everybody's right. getting fired. I'm fucking everything up. Like, how dare you fuck up old faithful? Right. Which is, in reality, what would happen. Understandable, like, exactly. Completely understandable, right? A billion-year-old geyser, and you fucked it up in, like, <laughs> a week or however long you've been here. Like, yeah. I will have your heads. Yeah. So, the Deedles, they feel super bad. Everyone's upset at them, like Jesse hates them, and the lead ranger guy hates them, and everybody's upset at them, so they feel bad, and like, we gotta take care of this prairie dog problem, like, we gotta figure out what the fuck is going on. So they look back at all their scans and realize that the prairie dog tunnels were all coming from one spot on this big open plain area within Yellowstone that has a motorhome on it. So they go to the motorhome, and they find out that the person who owns the motorhome is some guy named Slater, who used to have, who used to be the head ranger, but he got fired for like some other dumb shit. Right. And he has basically been putting the prairie dogs in and has this whole evil plan to fuck up Yellowstone because he hates that they fired him from his job, That's basically. Right. Like yeah. the most disgruntled ex-employee that has ever existed. <laughs> So his big idea, his main goal with his plan is That's some ingenuity. Like, I would be sitting there trying to think of, like, what can I do to these people personally in their personal lives? That's some imaginative fucking shit to be like, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sabotage this entire national park by introducing the most random fucking animal that I can possibly pick. Yeah. Just letting them run wild. So I think his plan was to create so many different air pockets with their different tunnels that it would fuck up the flow of all the geysers. I think that was the base of his plan, but they never really go into it too deep. Yeah. Basically, he's going to take the pressure that continuously builds up from Old Faithful, and he's going to reroute the pressure to what he calls New Faithful, which happens to be a geyser on his chunk of land within Yellowstone, right Right. in front of his motorhome. So when New Faithful erupts and becomes bigger than Old Faithful, understandably so because it's fucking like all the same power boosted up, he's basically going to take over all of Yellowstone because it's his his area and he would name it Sleaterstone. So... (laughs) He monologues for someone who had the most creative revenge plot that I've ever heard. He then dropped the ball a thousand percent on his like choice of what he was going to name it. Oh, absolutely. Like he, he blew his fucking load in creativity on the prairie dog 
like option and Absolutely. was just like, I have no creativity left. Slater Stone. There we go. <laughs> Absolutely. He had no fucking clue what he was doing after that. Like he came up with this complex plan and then had nothing to do with it. I like, couldn't figure out what to do with it. So he and his lackeys are working on that. And the Deedles find out that all of this is happening. He tries to kidnap them and basically murder them so that they can't fuck up his plan. And they end up actually foiling his plan. And when they do, it causes Old Faithful to erupt. Like they flip the switch basically on where the pressure is going. And instead of going to New Faithful, it goes to Old Faithful. And they shoot out of Old Faithful in their heat resistant suits right in front of the big like grandstand of people that are there to watch the celebration for the one billionth birthday and then they're heroes everyone's happy and they get to become rangers and it's like a whole yay yeah so at the end of the movie the pressure buildup that had been created thanks to Slater causes the plane where his house was to flood completely (laughs) and it creates essentially like a new ocean on the plane. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. I forgot about this. Deedlestone, a surf <laughs> destination in Wyoming. Amazing. Like, I totally forgot about this. As if the rest of this movie was not absurd enough, yes. you needed to add them surfing in Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. And, and that's Meet the Deedles. So some oh extra fun facts, I guess, about the movie. It has one of Slater's lackeys is Robert England, who, if you are a fan of our Spooky Movie Squad podcast, you will know him very well. That is Freddy Krueger, the original Freddy Krueger from the Mm -hmm. first, well, all of the movies except for the very (laughs) last one. Yes. He does the villain well. He does the villain very well. He does. In this movie, he's not so evil or creepy. It's more comedic. Yeah, he's like a comedic insane hillbilly, basically, who (laughs) is really dumb and is just doing what his boss is telling him to do. Which I'm sure he kind of relished and enjoyed playing for his usual like niche role. He was like, absolutely, I'll fucking play this 100% ridiculous role and I'll have a ball doing it. Yep. And then uh, Mel and Mo were both played by semi-famous people that you might recognize if you were around in the 90s. Megan Cavanaugh played Mo and she is from A League of Their Own. She played the tomboy girl who like lived with her dad and but was a fucking beast with a baseball bat. That's mm-hmm. Megan Cavanaugh. And then Mel was played by Anna Gasteyer from SNL. So, Amazing. Yes, they were both incredibly funny. This movie has an incredible 90s ska soundtrack. It includes Mighty Mighty Boss I was going to say the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. That's literally, this movie like dictated our musical interests for like a decade. I completely forgot that this is where it began for us. uh, Oh my God. Save Ferris and Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Oh my God. Pep Cat and Goldfinger. So it's a solid soundtrack. Amazing. And then there is a moment in the movie where before the Deedles get found out that they just like suck at everything uh, (laughs) and get kicked out of the park, they host a luau to celebrate like everything. Because who in Wyoming? They're from Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who in Wyoming has ever been to a luau? So basically, they introduce Wyoming to a luau. 
and there's a band at the luau and the band at the luau was like 90 percent of the band oingo boingo basically everybody oh, but danny elfman was the band in meet the deedles oh my god i forgot about this yeah. i totally forgot oingo boingo was in this movie Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I like that's looked it up enough. as I was watching it. I was like, huh, that sounds really good. <laughs> Wait a minute. I know th- I minute. know this. Hold on. Wait a minute. I know these sounds. <laughs> and then I like Googled it or whatever and fucking Oingo Boingo. Jesus. I was like, oh shit, everybody but Danny Elfman. That's this amazing. Is a treasure of a movie. Yeah, so that has been Meet the Deedles. My uh, heart has never been happier. <laughs> I can't believe that for so long I have been without Meet the Deedles in my life. And I will literally now, once we stop recording, get online and order Meet the Deedles (laughs) and probably then watch it every day for the next month because I'm in quarantine and what is time? It's fine. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this movie has everything you could ever want. I, I mean, well, maybe not. It doesn't really have a solid plot line. Or a good <laughs> to story. To be fair, though, actually, but- you know what? It kind of does have a solid plot line. You know what I'm going to say here? This is almost like a Rumspringa. This is almost like a coming-of-age story. Oh, it definitely right? is, because at the end of this story... Where I just said Rumspringa, I'm so sorry for all of our Amish listeners out there. That's not what I meant. I meant a Bildungsroman. A Bildungsroman is a, a, a coming-of-age story. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah. At the end of this story, I for- completely forgot about this until you said that. At the end of the story, their dad shows up in Wyoming for Deedlestone, basically, and says, hey, you know, you guys can come back to Hawaii. You can have the house. You can do whatever. Like, you you guys prove yourselves. You grew up. Like, great job. Now you can do whatever. And both the boys decline and say, nah, we're going to stay rangers. We're going to be park rangers. We found what we love. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, That's the boys insane. grew the fuck up and decided we're right. not going to be shitty surf bums anymore. We're going to be legitimate. Park that rangers. is legitimately what I think like the important key saving grace of this movie is. And I think that this is what so many popular movies nowadays forget that you need to really have something be near and dear to an audience's heart there needs to be some sort of redeeming qualities in the heroes that you're watching at the very least but in any of the characters and the fact that the Deedles despite the fact that they're idiots and they had just like well one of them is an idiot and one of them like chooses to be an idiot basically because he just doesn't care about anything else but The fact that they are these huge cliches, they're hugely spoiled. They have no idea about what, you know, real kind of down-to-earth life is for everyone else because they've been living this fantasy in Hawaii for their entire lives. The fact that when they are put in the position that they are in and they try their hardest to meet the goals and meet the challenges in front of them and they care when they fail and not only do they care but they care for reasons that is not about themselves it's not that they care because they feel like they made themselves look stupid they care because paul walker's character let jesse down they care because they let the people that they had grown to like and became close to they let them down And they want to 
make it right with them. And that is the type of redeeming sort of quality that makes a character not only believable, but endearing to an audience because it's relatable and it's something that you want to see in somebody that you would want to have as a friend. So the fact that, sorry, I'm like, the tequila is 100% kicked in. So I'm trying to like wrangle in and make sure that I don't go off on a tangent right now. Oh, you're fine. (laughs) But honestly, the 90s really, really, really did these types of stupid, comedic, yet good movies well and they did it because they never forgot that they never forgot that that's a component that's necessary to make a comedy movie to change it from okay or even good to amazing must own it want to watch it every night of my life even though it's so stupid i'll never give it up because it has to have that like component and meet the deedles has that like in spades it really doesn't even matter that everything else around the deedles is just pure insanity like just it's insane it doesn't matter because they are the core of the story and they have that component that's necessary yeah other crazy things that happen in this film while they are skateboarding down the hill in Wyoming, they cause a car accident with a big truck that is a circus truck and releases a bunch of circus animals that end up all over Wyoming, including, but not limited to, a lion who traps Mel and Mo in a tree, an elephant who just, we never see him again, and a bear that so fucks up shit like running over around and Wyoming. over and over again. That bear fucks shit up over and over again in this movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, they do have a redemption story yeah, for in this real. movie, but <laughs> it's so absurd. It's also one gazillion percent absurd. And the fact yes. that those two things can coexist in the same movie yes. and do it believably quote unquote you know what i'm saying like obviously this much insanity is not believable in the real world but on like i don't know when like mercury is in retrograde or whatever and like saturn is in the moon or something yeah. and every insane thing that could possibly happen happens to happen to you on such and such day that's this movie yeah. <laughs> basically everything that could go wrong and everything that could be the absolute craziest option while things are going wrong happens <laughs> yeah and i will agree with you that a lot of comedies are missing that growth factor in comedies like okay i'm one of those people i mean if you listen to any of our other podcasts you know any of that the other I ones watch, really that i watch a lot of movies yes. okay on top of the ones that i review for the channel specifically i watch a lot of dumb just a, a lot of dumb shit okay yeah whenever netflix everything whenever netflix out. puts out a dumb like teen comedy or romance or drama or whatever i am 100 in like i will yes. watch it as soon as it pops up in the like new releases that's a thing that i do like i will waste an entire saturday because what the fuck else am i doing hashtag quarantine <laughs> like i will waste an entire saturday and i will watch like five or six of these just garbage whatever movies with nobody who's anybody 
famous, just like whatever Netflix decided to, to turn out. You have to see what it is. You have to see what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say probably 50% of them do not have that growth factor. No. And they end up being movies where I'm just fucking upset that I wasted an hour and a half watching. Like, yep. why did I spend 90 minutes for this when this person... character isn't believable? This character yeah. isn't redeemable. Character why do I care about this person? The character who I met at the beginning, who I disliked at the beginning, because you're supposed to kind of dislike the characters at the beginning, did not change at all to the end and decided to remain the exact same as they were from the beginning and like why the fuck did I watch this right there was no payoff like I just watched this guy go through dumb shit for an hour and a half and then nothing changed he right. was still an asshole to the girl or she was still a bitch to whatever they didn't learn anything they didn't get any better exactly the word learn that's the perfect word that you chose the learning um aspect one of the things that lit analysis people, but also like all types of story analysis. So, you know, like movie people, TV people, other ways that you like, you know, like art people. One thing that always is the baseline that draws people in that makes a piece of art memorable is the person going through a transformation. If nothing changes about at least one of the individuals, much less the main individual, then the audience or the observer or the viewer tunes out because the nature of humanity is transformation they you know like the stupid cliche saying of like nothing is certain in life but change and we all like would roll our eyes at that because it's you know a cliche saying but it's a cliche saying because it's true and that's what we look for we look for ways to see that type of transformation in other people because that's what we go through as individuals whether it's tiny little changes or monumentous huge changes that's irrelevant a change has to happen though i'm somebody that i've talked about it like with um kevin too my husband and like all of my friends they've been weirded out since we've you know become friends like years and years ago that i'm a really in our group of friends we like to have fun we like to be funny with each other we like to crack jokes but being that type of personality I actually have a really hard time enjoying comedy. I have a really hard time enjoying comedy. And it's been almost to the point that like it bothers me because I want to be able to enjoy the things that everyone else is enjoying. When they're watching the latest like hilarious show, I want to be able to like be in on that too, but I know that I can't. And I'll watch, you know, however many episodes and I can tell when the comedy is there and I can tell that it's funny, quote unquote, but it doesn't hit me and it doesn't make me respond in the way that everyone else does. And it's actually always bothered me because I've always honestly kind of worried that like, am I just being like a fucking snob? (laughs) Like, am I just being like, is it literally just because like, I'm just being like, oh, this isn't funny enough for me because like my my humor is just so highbrow. Like I have legitimately worried about that for years of my life. Like why things are not funny to me. The movie Meet the Deedles made you laugh. So clearly, all the time, clearly, your humor is not highbrow. All the time. 
Exactly. Like, and half like, this that's movie, the thing. Half this movie is a poop joke. So like, that's Truly. not highbrow humor. No. And that's what I'm saying. Like, for me, I can't put my finger on what it is about it. But you know what? Having this conversation with you, I think that's what it is. I think that for me, there's a component of comedy that lots of creators miss at least 50% of the time. And it's that change aspect. It's the thing yeah. that I don't care about the character. And if yeah. I don't care about the character, then I don't care about what's happening to them and nothing else is funny to me. Yeah. Like, I just, I can't. I just disengage. And I always yeah. feel really bad because people are always like, you have to watch this movie. You have to watch this show. And I'm always like, yeah. Do I? <laughs> I want to. I would love to enjoy this with you, but I just know that, like, I don't know, there's something wrong with me. If I don't laugh, don't be upset at me, because I swear, like, it's okay. I can tell that you think it's funny, and that's awesome. Yeah. I just probably won't laugh, because <laughs> for me, like, there's just something that it just doesn't trigger. Yeah. But that meet the deedles just hits, just like whatever my list is. Even I don't know, but every single item on my list, meet the Deedles, checks marks. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just great. I mean, that's it's, fair. It's wonderful. There's, that's <sighs> fair. There's action. There's adventure. There's animals. There's romance. There's there, romance. There's, there's legitimate drama. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's all there. It's yes. all there. So if you have not seen Meet the Deedles <laughs> and you have kids, I highly recommend watching Please. this film with your kids. Like, it's hilarious. Please. Little kids. Yeah, I was saying, not your tiny kids. Not tiny maybe, kids are maybe not. Maybe kids like 10 and up. <laughs> yeah. Tiny <laughs> kids are not going to understand it. I'd say probably 8 and up are going to get it, yeah. like, are going to get more of what's happening in it. Yeah, the only reason I got it when I was 8 was because I was watching it with you. And so, like, and yeah. like you and I were around each other. So, yeah. you know, like, I needed to, like, know and understand everything that was happening happening around you yeah so I was ready for that because I had you in my life you know yeah some of the jokes are a little bit but they're hard gonna to understand right for smaller over. kids they're yeah. gonna go they're gonna go over kids heads and like okay I spend a lot of time around kids everyone, everyone <laughs> spoiler knows alert spoiler alert yeah everybody knows that about me and I will tell you if you laugh at something that a kid doesn't laugh at they will ask you why did you laugh why mm-hmm. did you laugh? What made you laugh? Why did you laugh? What did you laugh at? What mm-hmm. What was it about that that made you laugh that I didn't laugh at? I didn't catch it. I didn't yeah, catch it. Like, I didn't understand. Like when I was a kid, I didn't pay attention to what my parents were laughing at that I didn't understand at all. Like I went to the theater and watched Shrek with my parents and they were laughing nonstop because that <laughs> movie is packed with adult humor. Oh that, my God. Absolutely. That me, that me at 12, I didn't understand most of that, but I was laughing at all the kid parts, kid the kid exactly. appropriate parts. And I didn't give a shit why my parents were laughing. Like they found it funny. I found it funny. Great. We found a movie Everyone we can all watch happy. together. Exactly. For whatever reason, kids now need to know why adults are laughing and they're not laughing. So, okay. I think, ex- it's, be- I think it's because of the, like, censor culture. I think it's because of the fear of, like, I can't expose my kids to this because it'll, it'll taint them or, you know, it'll scar them or they're not ready for it. When you have to remember that, you know, it's just like I said, you and I were 10 and 8 when we watched this. All of the, like, 
blatantly sexual things that were happening. Yeah, I wasn't the really paying attention to Neither it. Neither of us. That yeah. blew way over our heads. We were yes. not aware of it. It didn't. It didn't make us suddenly obsessed with sex. It didn't make us suddenly like. Well, yeah, but you know, but realize. Then, but, but even with the culture of you know protecting your kids from over sexualization and all of that. I can't explain to a kid why I found something that, you know, that Sokka said on Avatar funny right. that you didn't find funny. Like, I can't explain that to it's you. It's ironic. It, yeah. Like, it, you don't understand was, irony yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was funny. It was funny to me because it was funny. Right. Not like because of my personal life experiences. I can't explain to you why right. what Sokka said applied to a 30 year old. And not to an eight-year-old, like. <laughs> right. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I think that the reason that kids feel like that is because they probably are surrounded so much with the, you can't watch this. This isn't for kids. This isn't for kids. So, like, anything oh. that they get to enjoy with adults, they're starving for experiences and being able to connect with yeah. adult stuff so when they're with adults and the adults are having a good time they need to know what it is about that because that's the only times they get with having adult experiences yeah stuff that they're allowed to be there for well like yeah well like for me like one of the kids I watch who is the most guilty about asking me why I laughed just now he gets to watch pretty much anything like there there's no censoring there it's pretty much it's like Oh, you want to watch this? You want to watch that? That's fine. Just, you know, the words you're not right. allowed to say. You know, the basically. words you're not allowed to say. And just let you know, you know, I probably if it's something that's super scary or whatever, hey, well, just to let you know, this might be scary. So if yeah, you still want to ex- watch exactly. it, you can watch exactly. it. But So he's, he's one of those kids, like he pretty much gets to watch whatever. And every time we are watching something together and I laugh at something that he doesn't find funny, just something at, absurd, Katie? like, you know, <laughs> One of the one of the adults in the show will mention like a gas price hike or something stupid that like right. applies to me because I'm an adult and exactly. I have to pay for gas. And he's <laughs> yep. like, he doesn't understand what was Relatable. funny. I'm just like, <laughs> I just like, haha. And he's like, what, what, why did you laugh? What, what was funny? What was funny about that? And I'm like, it was funny because th- that's real. Like that yeah. happens in my real life. <laughs> right. It's just, you'll, it's literally one of those hard moments where you have to stare your child in the face and be like, this is a cliche moment and I'm sorry for saying it and that it's coming out of my mouth, but you won't understand until you're older. Yeah. (laughs) I say that, I say that to him all the time. I'm like, when you have a car, you'll understand. When you're married, you'll understand. When you have, you know, when you are in high school, you'll understand. Just like constantly, there's all these like tears of understanding that he'll get someday but doesn't understand now and i can't be like oh yeah that was funny because shrek was talking about his penis like (laughs) i can't be like that like i can't blatantly be like that right (laughs) shrek just told a dick joke that's why i'm laughing (laughs) but i can't say that (laughs) i have to like no you'll you'll get it a little later you'll get it right (laughs) there will be a day and i just love that he probably has this mental list that he's written down like all the items when he's been like you'll you'll understand when you're married you'll understand when you have a car so uh, i'm just picturing like when he finally gets a car he's like all right now i gotta be looking i gotta now i gotta now i gotta find that episode that episode of avatar where they were talking about that i gotta figure it out check mark all right, now I got I get it. it. I finally <laughs> get it. Why did it take me this long and why did I care so much? That was a dumb joke. <laughs> yeah, of course it was. 
face. Truly. It was not, like, I don't understand why you were so obsessed with trying to figure it out. I was trying to tell you, kid. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So that was uh, Meet the Deedles. Go watch (laughs) it with your kids. It's hilarious. I would not recommend watching this just as an adult unless you grew up watching this film when you were a kid. Uh, It's it's definitely a niche, like, millennials will probably really enjoy this this movie. Yeah, but sadly, this movie did horribly at the box office. Like, nobody wanted to go see this film. It cost... It cost more to make this film than they made in the theaters. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, Sam and I were absolutely obsessed about it obsessed. when we were kids. Like, we watched it every single weekend that we were together. All and I am the time. fully 100% again obsessed. I'm yes. not joking. I will be going and getting it and watching it after we're done with yes, this. So if you, if you haven't seen this movie before and you have kids, I recommend watching it. It's on Disney Plus. You can probably find it other places. It's on Disney Plus? Oh my yeah. God. That's the most surprising thing about this entire episode. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's, I'm It's I'm probably okay. in other places uh, if you would like to pay for it. But if you want it as part of a subscription Offering. that you probably already have, it's on Disney Plus. You can watch it with your family. I wouldn't recommend watching this like just if you're an adult and you don't have any kids around you because you're gonna feel weird because I yeah. felt kind of weird watching it. I was like, it's an absurd movie. It's, you it's have absurd. to be in an like, absurd I'm, mood or you know with yeah. kids that make you feel absurd all the or time. Or just have a really really big thing for Paul Walker because that's yes. enough incentive to watch this movie. Honestly, one thousand percent. <laughs> Okay, but this has been Meet the Needles. This has been Real Lit. Thank you to Sam for Woo. discussing, what did we talk about? Dis- discussing was, is Pride such a polite prejudice. term for Pride literally giving you an entire dissertation yes, in, a, in spoken form synopsis, on Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> a synopsis of Pride and Prejudice that is shorter than it would have taken you to read Pride and Prejudice. Potentially, yes. That, that's no, very not possible. potentially, for sure. <laughs> if I sat and read Pride and Prejudice, it would take me like a month and a half, okay? <laughs> Even your two and a half hour long spiel, okay? Well, however long you took. Even that long spiel is way shorter than anything Truth. involving Pride and Prejudice that I could have accomplished other than watching <laughs> the movie. And I'm good. Yeah. And I'm one good. of the things, like, it's hard to watch the Pride and Prejudice movies. Um, I'd say the newer one is the easiest one to watch for modern audiences. You're because yeah, because they make it kind of streamline some of the like subplots yeah. and make it to where it's a little bit easier to like view without getting to hear all of the inner monologues of the character and yeah. all of the like information that Jane Austen gives. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would recommend like if you're interested in the story and you maybe don't want to delve into the book, but you want to see, I would yeah. recommend watching the newer one. That's not like yeah. a popular opinion among like lit people. People generally like the Colin Firth one better because the Colin Firth one really sticks to the book very much, but you have to remember that the Colin Firth one was an episodic release so yeah. there's like six episodes and they're all like that's an hour much. long each yeah that's, that's too much. six six I, hours of stuff hey Hollywood listen up uh I need a version <laughs> of Pride and Prejudice that is done similarly to how the Leonardo DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet was made. oh yeah oh it would- I need I need a modern day like 2020 version of Pride and Go Prejudice get Baz. Like, freaking call up Baz Luhrmann right now. Like, make that movie. I might have her number. If, 
it doesn't have to be like dark and gritty like Romeo and Juliet because it's not really the same type of story. But if yeah. you but if you put it in 2020 with even with modern royals, like if you used a facsimile of like Harry and Meghan, Harry and Meghan, or whatever, mm-hmm. like make it relatable to us. You know, they have smartphones. They're they're watching Netflix. Like whatever the fuck, right. That's the version of Pride and Prejudice that I need because my brain cannot handle old English and it's like, also the it's whole, also, like class system yes, is yeah. too much the, to like understand. The class system is really hard for people. It's and really it, hard to and understand. It bothers them. It's hard to understand because we're so far from it. Yeah. Um especially because that is all in Britain and not America. Like, mm-hmm. may, I mean, you could make it in America, make it in Britain, whatever. Oh, yeah. but, the, but the class system that we have I mean, now- I mean, 10 things I hate about you, you know? Exactly, 10 things I hate, me, the I hate about you is Treaming of the Shrew, exactly. Exactly. Like, the class system is too far removed from what our modern class system is for it to make sense. And they use a bunch of jargon that is outdated and old that not a lot of people understand. So I need a modern version of Pride and Prejudice without zombies that makes some <laughs> fucking sense yes let them speak regular english yes not like oldie timey bullshit okay i can't Old, yay oldie times exactly well that's why i don't read those books like that because <laughs> i fucking can't i hate that shit yeah i get caught up on the language and then i'm just annoyed like i don't understand what the fuck they're talking about right well and the other thing too is jane austen is the like the height of that type of language yeah she is a linguist like she is a thousand percent has crafted every single fucking word in everything she's written to hit you the exact way that she fucking wants like she's that bitch (laughs) you know what i need okay here's what i actually need uh lin-manuel miranda i'm gonna need you to make a musical of pride and prejudice done in (gasps) hip-hop rap lyrics give it to me because that i can (gasps) fucking stomach and i will understand everything and you can fit in all 700 pages my whole life just changed novel into your raps just have fucking david get up there and be I, I will not Darcy, actually Mr. be complete Darcy. now in my life until Lynn Manuel Miranda does that. <laughs> Lynn, are you listening? Are you listening? Can you hear us? Like you want you want to make it relevant. He doesn't even have to, it doesn't even have to be to it doesn't even have to be like a Broadway musical. Like make it a st- make it a movie musical. Oh no, I I beg to differ. I insist on it being a Broadway musical because <laughs> there is a Pride and Prejudice musical that already exists and it's shite. It is the worst fucking thing I've ever seen. (laughs) I love musicals. This is me. You're talking to me and I am telling you, staring you in the eyes, never go and watch that Pride and Prejudice musical. Oh, I won't. It's the fucking worst thing that I've ever wasted my life on. I won't. Um, but that's do. what I need. I need it done in a modern way. <laughs> um, I need a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice with a diverse cast and a class system that makes sense to the modern man and not Absolutely. 1700s Britain. Like that's- yeah, and unless Lynn Manuel Miranda does it, that would be the only way that we would be able to have it still "quote unquote" in the same setting because then it would be wrapped and everyone would love it. Lynn, uh, I'll have my people call your people. <laughs> in the meantime, 
please check out all of the Allentown Presents podcasts as well as uh, listen to our first episode. Otherwise, we've, we've got a Twitter. It's Allentown Pod. You can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Allentown Presents. Thank you so much, Susan Dorda, for making our beautiful artwork. We love you so much. You can find her work at www.susandorta.com S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. Thank you so much, Susan. We love you. And we love you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Keep it lit. Real lit. Ooh, shit.